Welcome to a very full schedule agenda. Indeed. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Historic Preservation Commission hearing for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. When we breach the item you are interested in speaking to, please line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes, and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. Please speak clearly and slowly, and if you care to, state your name for the record. I ask that we silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And finally, I will remind members of the public that the Commission does not tolerate any disruption or outbursts of any kind. At this time, I'd like to take roll. Commission President Matsuda? Here. Commission Vice President Nagaswaran? Here. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Vergara? Here. And Commissioner Wright? Here. We expect Commissioners Baldoff and Campbell to be absent today. First on your agenda is general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the Commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission, except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Woody Labounty. I am from San Francisco Heritage. I just want to point out that historic preservation is increasingly being framed and publicized as a significant impediment to housing production. Indeed, there are more and more articles, claims, and I would say gross misinformation on preservation and indeed even more open disdain for the idea that any part of our city's history is worth protecting in any way. Sometimes it's a direct attack, cherry picking examples of wealthy communities seeking recognition of historic landscapes, stories which can easily tie into our society's most stark inequities and history of racism. And sometimes it's just lazy references conflating preservation with stereotypes of obstructive NIMBYs. Uh, today's agenda, which I won't address directly, provides a direct, a richer and more accurate version of what preservation is. It's not always saying no, but saying yes to cultural districts, legacy businesses, celebrating the architecture, landscapes, and the diverse communities that make up this amazing city, the traits that draw people and praise from around the world. Um, now, the push to add housing to the city of San Francisco is not lacking champions. Everyone is ready to add housing to the city, including San Francisco Heritage. There are so, so many places we can do so and also keep what makes this city special. This commission is one of the few places where the benefits and the importance of preservation is even talked about. And I'd like to encourage this commission to consider sharing that more broadly. If you can't as a commission, then please do so as individuals with your peers, in your circles, in your discussions with other elected officials, with friends, with family. We need to make our positive voices heard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, last call for general public comment. Seeing none, general public comment is closed. Department matters, item one, department announcements. Good afternoon, commissioners. Rich Sucre, department staff. I just wanted to provide you an update on some recent happenings at the Board of Supervisors. At the Land Use Committee on last week, the Board of Supervisors heard the landmark designation for the Grand Theater. So that is moving forward towards becoming our next city landmark. As you know, the commission recommended approval for this landmarking. In addition, the Land Use Committee was supposed to hear the landmark designation for Sacred Heart. However, the Land Use Committee decided to um, continue that item for one week. 
Um, other than that, I have no other items for, um, for your update. Thank you. If there are no questions, Commission Matters Item 2, consideration of adoption draft minutes for February 7th, 2024. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the Commission on their minutes. Again, you need to come forward. Seeing none, public comment on the minutes is closed, and they are now before you, Commissioners. Motion to approve. Is there a second? Second. Thank you, Commissioners, on that motion to adopt your minutes. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Negus-Warren? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously 5-0, to zero, placing us on item 3, Commission comments and questions. Are there any uh, Commission comments, questions, disclosures, announcements? Commissioner Negus-Warren? Um, I will be recusing on items 9A and 9B um, due to the fact that my employer, Fort Mason Center, has um, uh, uh, supported and paid for the applications for the legacy business uh, registry. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara. Uh, I think I need to disclose that I took a, a tour of the Chinatown branch of the library last Great. Friday. Great. I think we all should disclose that. Uh, okay. I don't know if all of us made that tour. I, I did. I know Commissioner Nagus Warren did. And I, oh, I did as well. And I also spoke uh, with Ms. McMillan yesterday about the uh, African-American citywide contact statement. Thank okay. you. Thanks. Okay. Any other disclosures? I have a disclosure that I will be recusing myself on agenda item uh, 9F because of its proximity to my residence. And I also will, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No. Oh, I'll be recusing myself from items five and seven. Any other comments or questions regarding today's agenda? It's a very full agenda. And I think we will be here till we uh, will have to leave at 4.30. So we might take a break. So please, commissioners, let me know when you need that. I think we're good with agenda item number three, Jonas. Very good. With that, we should move on to consideration of items proposed for continuance. Item four, case number 2019-01-7325-COA-109 Liberty Street for a certificate of appropriateness. It is being proposed for an indefinite continuance. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their continuance calendar only on the matter of continuance. Again, you need to come forward. Seeing none, public comment is closed, and your continuance calendar is now before you, Commissioners. Motion to approve. I'll second that. Thank you, Commissioners, on that motion to continue item four as proposed indefinitely. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas-Warren? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously five to zero. Placing us under your consent calendar, all matters listed here under constituted consent calendar are considered to be routine by the commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote. There will be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the commission, the public or staff so requests, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item at this or a future hearing. Item five, case number 2023-00398 MLS at 988 Market Street, this is a request to adopt a resolution recommending to the Board of Supervisors non-renewal. Item six, case number 2023-00377-9 MLS for the property at 2209 Webster Street 
also a request to adopt a resolution to non-renew a Mills Act. Item 7, case number 2023-010621-COA at 20 Franklin Street, a certificate of appropriateness. And item 8, case number 2022-013043-COA at 1135 Powell Street, a certificate of appropriateness. Um, members of the public, this is your opportunity to request that any of these items be removed from the consent calendar and heard later today or at a future hearing. Please come forward. Seeing none, public comment is closed, and your consent calendar is now before you, Commissioners. Um, Commissioner Wright has requested recusal from items 5 and 7, so we should take up those matters first and then 6 and 8 separately. I think we also, Commissioner Nagaswarian, would like to have several agenda items removed from consent. Oh. There you go. I would like 20 Franklin Street and 1135 Powell Street taken off consent. Okay, very good. Um, shall we hear those at the beginning of the cal regular calendar or at the end? We could hear them at the beginning. Very good. So items 7 and 8 will be heard at the beginning of the regular calendar, leaving items 5 and 6. So Commissioner Wright is requesting that, item five, that he be recused from item 5, so we should take up that matter first. Motion to recuse, uh, Commissioner Wright, on item 5. Second. second. Thank you, Commissioners. On that motion to recuse, Commissioner Wright, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners. Commissioner Wright, you are hereby recused. I would just stay there. Motion to approve 998 market on consent. Very good. Commissioners, on that motion. Oh, wait a minute. I did not hear a second. I'll second that. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara, on that motion then to approve commission item. Agenda item five. Agenda item five on consent. Commissioner Vergara. Yes. Commissioner Wright, uh, excuse me, Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda. Yes. So move commissioners, that motion passes unanimously four to zero, leaving us on item six. Motion to approve item six on consent. Thank you, Commissioner Foley. On that, is there a second? I'll second that. Thank you. On that motion to approve item six on consent, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously five to zero. Placing us uh, on your regular calendar f on item seven that's been pulled off of consent for case number 2023-010621-COA at 20 Franklin St Street, a certificate of appropriateness. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Rebecca Salgado, Planning Staff. Before you is a request for a Certificate of Appropriateness for alterations to 20 Franklin Street, located at the northeast corner of Franklin Street, Page Street, and Market Street. The property is a contributor to the Article 10 Market Street Masonry Landmark District and was constructed in 1917. The project involves a voluntary seismic upgrade consisting primarily of exterior steel moment frames to be installed at the two light wells at the Page Street and Market Street facades, and exterior steel brace frames to be installed at the minimally visible secondary north and east elevations. The project also includes mechanical, electrical, and plumbing upgrades to the existing housing units that will result in the installation of four-inch diameter through wall vents with painted metal caps at select locations of the Franklin Street facade and the minimally visible secondary north and east elevations. 
Mechanical upgrades will also require louvers to be inserted in the openings of two existing non-historic transom lights at the Market Street facade. The project includes the replacement of an existing non-historic security gate at the North Light Court at the Franklin Street frontage with a new metal security gate. Lastly, the project includes exterior facade repairs and interior alterations at all levels. Staff finds that the proposed work will be in conformance with the requirements of Article 10 and the Secretary of the Interior Standards for Rehabilitation. The proposed work will not modify the existing retail and residential uses of the building, and the seismic bracing has been designed to retain the existing interior residential unit layouts and protect this historic property in the event of an earthquake. While the new seismic bracing will be visible from multiple public rights of way, it has been designed to be as minimal and unobtrusive as possible, will be set back from the street behind the decorative light court pediments, and will be painted to match the surrounding brick cladding while select areas of brick cladding will be removed and altered for the installation of the seismic bracing and the new four-inch diameter vents at the Franklin Street facade, only a small percentage of the total brick cladding will be affected by this work. The new security gate at the Franklin Street frontage will have a simple contemporary design that is compatible with the existing building but also does not create a false sense of history. The restoration work at the exterior elevations proposes repairs rather than replacement of historic facade elements, including repointing, brick repair, wood window trim repair, and terracotta repair. Staff's preliminary recommendation for this project is for approval with conditions. Staff has not received any public comment on the project. This concludes my presentation unless there are any questions, and the project sponsor also has a brief presentation of the project. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have five minutes if you need it. Thank you. Jonah, how do I... Uh, uh, SFGov, can we go to the computer, please? Thank you, commissioners, for hearing us today. My name is Lilia Roman. I'm an assistant project manager at Mercy Housing, um, and I'm supporting the 20 Franklin Street develop or project. It's an existing building of 70 units at Franklin Market and Page Streets, and it's 100% affordable housing for um, adults with HIV slash AIDS. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Elisa Skaggs, and I'm with Paige and Trumbull. We're the preservation architect for this project. Uh, the project is located um, at the intersections of uh, Market Street, Franklin, and Page Street. Uh, we're very excited to get this project going and have even gone to the Office of Historic Preservation and had a preliminary discussion, and it looks like it's going to be eligible for tax credits. Um, the building was constructed in uh, 1917, designed by Albert Landsberg and is a contributor to the Market Street Masonry Historic District, which consists of eight buildings that are notable for their exceptional architectural character. 
The building was um, part of the reconstruction that happened after the earthquake and fire in 1906, and it has several character-defining features, including the red brick cladding, the terracotta detailing, the irregular massing, uh, tripartite composition, um, decorative cornice, and uh, transom windows above the storefronts, among, among um, others. Um, the project consists of minimizing uh, demolition to the historic building, both inside and outside. Um, you know, goals include um, uh, minimizing the impact to the special needs tenants of the building, including their quality of life, maximizing the cost effectiveness of the project to allow for other improvements, and we also have preservation goals, standard one, maintaining the existing use of the building, retaining the historic integrity of the building while making the building safer for the tenants, compliance with the Secretary of the Interior standards while considering both economic and technical feasibility, and also consideration of the tenant's spatial quality needs while retaining historic fabric to the greatest extent. Um, and now we have the architect um, here to talk about the uh, seismic um, uh, upgrades. Hi, I'm Eric Robinson. I'm a partner with Paulette Taggart Architects. We're the architects working with Mercy. We also have Steve Lapisto, who is our structural engineer from, pardon me, from DCI Engineers. Um, maybe we can go to the next slide. Um, the project, the building, as you can see, has these light well cutouts, and that creates a sort of discontinuous floor plate. So the combination of that discontinuous floor plate and the masonry uh, walls at the exterior are real seismic risks. It's actually a very vulnerable building. It's a building with a vulnerable population. So the primary uh, scope of the project is the voluntary seismic upgrade. We're doing the seismic upgrade because that's part of the funding requirements with state TCAC funding. Um, we worked and studied multiple options in terms of how we can make the building seismically safe, uh, starting with keeping all of the structure on the interior, because obviously as a historic building, we want to avoid the expression of new structure on the exterior. But because of the size of the units, they're quite small, we found that putting the structure on the interior actually made the units almost unlivable. Uh, so we really worked a balance between having some of the seismic on the interior and some of the common areas, such as corridors, and putting some of the structure on the exterior. But as Elisa mentioned, trying to create a structure with moment frames that are set back from the street uh, that are least impactful to it visually and aesthetically. We had actually a really great work, work session with uh, Shippo up in Sacramento to talk about our, these alternatives and to explain to them how we came to this solution and show them that we had worked through a variety of um, of a variety of systems. Um, I think that's really the crux of the matter. Uh, Steve is here if you guys have questions, but I think, oh, well, just a couple of views. The view from Market Street, uh, you can see this is a rendering on the left that shows one of those moment frames that would be inserted into the, the light well. Uh, a more economical solution would have been a brace frame with cross braces, but we're going with a more expensive solution because the moment frame is, is, is you know, more visible, more transparent. Uh, and then you can see this, the space between, on, uh, on Franklin, the space between our building and the adjacent building, there will be a, a, a brace frame that's exposed in a courtyard there, but you, you really can't see it from the street. Is there another? No, that's it. Okay. And so if you have further questions, uh, we have the um, structural engineer here, Steve Lapisto. Great, thank you. If that concludes project sponsor's presentation, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Again, you need to come forward. 
Seeing none, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, commissioners. Thank you. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, uh, thank you so much for that presentation. I think it helps for the public to hear that there's a specific, uh, the specific reasons why there's an external frame. We don't want this to be a common thing that happens across the city where we're adding brace frames and or diagonal moment or you know diagonal br buckling brace frames on the exterior of buildings. So it's good to hear that. Um, uh, and I, I also wanted to just clarify that you are using the moment frames rather than the diagonal brace frames because those um, were a lot more um, visually uh, disruptive to the facade, um, but also crossed um, across uh, windows, which might not be, um, you know, uh, as as appreciated by the tenants themselves. So I appreciate that um, and. Uh, I wanted to ask just a few questions. Um, is the retrofit reversible? Which I believe it would be, um, but I would like to have that clarified. And then um, is, it, uh, is the brace frame pushed out from the facade so that water does not get caught between the two or is there some sort of protection um, between the brace frame and the brick facade? Um, and uh, those are my questions. Thanks again uh, for letting us present the project. Um, as far as reversibility, the project is being designed to be reversible. Uh, there would have to be some uh, patching if um, the the brace frame gets removed, but um, we feel confident that that could happen. Um, so, um, you know, in terms of reversibility, we do think it meets that criteria. Yeah, and in terms of the penetrations, um, in some places we have spot penetrations that will go through. The frame is pulled away from the uh, the masonry in the majority of places, and there are spot penetrations where we would, you know, basically flash it and waterproof it. There is one. There is there are one or two locations on the sidewall uh, the, in that courtyard where we actually have, currently the design has a continuous shelf of steel that needs to go along that sidewall that will get flashed, obviously, so we're very cognizant of the, you know, protecting the building in terms of water. I did notice that some of the detailing that I saw was going through, um, you know, like a single brick that, that would basically break the brick. Is there a methodology to to going through that facade, um, either by taking out the brick and cutting it, or any any. Yeah, like well, that. there's actually a, a, a full repointing of all the bricks, so we're going to have a masonry sub subcontractor on the job who would be performing all that work on the brick. So in certain areas, they'll be removing, probably removing more brick than ultimately would be removed once you install everything, and then putting brick back around, but doing it in such a way that it's matching the historic character, so that you shouldn't see. Again, with repointing everything, you shouldn't see patches or changes to the brick because we'll be reusing the same brick. The the detailing showed it going through the brick rather than the joint, so that's that's the reason I'm asking. I think um, uh, you know ultimately we will be requesting mock-ups, and I think that once uh, the moment frame gets you know located, we'll take a look at that just to make sure that it's an optimal location and it's, it responses to preservation concerns. Okay, great, thank you so much. Thank you.
Any other questions or comments from the commission? Is there a motion? Motion to approve. Second? Anybody? I'll Thank second you. that. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to approve with conditions. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Excuse me. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously four to zero. Commissioner Wright, you may rejoin us for item eight which was also pulled off of consent for case number 2022-013043-COA for the property at 1135 Powell Street for a certificate of appropriateness. Good afternoon again, commissioners. Rebecca Salgado, planning staff. For you is a request for a certificate of appropriateness for alterations to 1135 Powell Street, located on the west side of Powell Street between Jackson Street and Washington Street. The property is landmark number 235, Chinatown Branch Library, and was constructed in 1921. The project involves work at the historic main reading room, including removal of a non-historic mezzanine, exposed diagonal seismic brace frames, and ceiling lighting and vents installation of concealed concrete and steel seismic plates at portions of the walls and ceilings, installation of new lighting and vents at the ceiling, and installation of removable flat panel artwork in the arched niches of the west elevation. The proposed project also includes work at the roof of both the historic library and the 1996 rear addition, including construction of a new publicly accessible roof deck with a glazed windscreen set back approximately 18 feet from the front of the building, um, that will be minimally visible from a public right-of-way. Replacement of an existing elevator penthouse with a new elevator penthouse. Replacement of non-historic skylights and replacement and relocation of mechanical equipment. The project also involves work on the Powell Street facade, <clears throat> including replacement of non-historic aluminum windows with wood entrance doors and windows matching the historic configuration. Replacement of non-historic entrance doors, non-historic metal pipe railings, modifications to the non-historic secondary entrance stair, um, and repairs to the historic facade elements, including wood windows, entrance light fixtures, and the brick facade. The proposed project also includes exterior alterations to the non-visible, non-historic secondary elevations of the 1996 addition to the library, including window replacement in existing openings and repairs to existing cladding. Staff finds that the proposed work will be in conformance with the sec with the requirements of Article 10 and the Secretary of the Interior Standards for Rehabilitation. The proposed seismic work will bring the volume of the main reading room closer to its historic appearance while providing improved protection for the historic property in the event of an earthquake. While portions of the historic plaster walls and ceiling in the main reading room will need to be removed for the seismic work, the replacement ornamental plaster will be based on molds taken of the historic walls and ceiling ahead of demolition work. The proposed work at the Powell Street facade will repair historic cladding and replace incompatible non-historic doors and windows with new doors and windows that align with the historic appearance of the building. The proposed new roof deck will be set back from the front of the building and story pole mock-ups were installed to confirm that the deck and associated glass windscreen will be only minimally visible from a public right-of-way. The roof deck and windscreen have a simple contemporary design that is differentiated from but compatible with the historic library. 
Staff's preliminary recommendation for this project is for approval with conditions. Staff has received one additional inquiry from a member of the public since packlets were published with concerns about the new elevator penthouse's impact on the light and views from neighboring residential properties. This concludes my presentation, unless there are any questions, and the project sponsor also has a brief presentation of the project. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have five minutes. Good morning. Um, my name is Andy Sohn. I'm, oh, let me get this up. Good morning. My name is Andy Sohn. I'm an architect with San Francisco Public Works. I'm the project lead for this um, Chinatown Branch Library. This is Nancy Goldenberg from Trainer HL. She is our historic architect. Um, the project, uh, this project was one of three projects that was not renovated in the 2000s bond program that was called BLIP in San Francisco. There's 27 branches. There's three that were not renovated because this had received a renovation in 1995. Um, it's a historic building, 1921 Carnegie Library, one of seven in San Francisco. Also, G. Albert Landsberg uh, building. He did North Beach Mission, Sunset, and Presidio branches. Uh, it was the North Beach branch until 1958 when it was renamed uh, the Chinatown Branch Library. Um, the goals for the project are to, uh, to uh, restore the historic reading room, which you can see in this image here that received an unsympathetic un, uh, renovation in the 1990s. Essentially, the building was considered an envelope for, for a library project, and uh, not a lot of thought was given to this, so the interior space of the main reading room was uh, destroyed by these brace frames in this mezzanine. It's anecdotally, uh, it's, it seems that the Carnegie Library um, landmarking came about as a result of this project and this reading room. We've had extensive community engagement since 2018, numerous meetings with the public and in other uh, commissions. Uh, it's between Jackson and Washington Street on Powell Street. This is an image of the building in the early 1920s. Before it had neighbors, you can see that there was an entry at the lower level and an entry on the upper level. and. Uh, that has changed. There's images of the reading room. We have very few images. We've, we've scoured to find these images for the, the project. This is the floor plan in the 1921. And this piece was demolished, the backyard. To your right is Powell Street. The red arrows represent entries. And then this, these are plans from the 1990s. And you can see this is the reading room on the right with the mezzanine above. These are our proposed plans. We want to uh, provide a larger community room on the ground floor. And on the uh, main floor, restore the historic, the grandeur of the historic reading room. This is a roof terrace that we propose. There's a roof terrace now on the back of the building. And this is a section through the building 
where you can see Powell Street and the roof terrace set back from the front uh, facade. So we did, we, we did an extensive uh, facade survey to um, analyze the condition of the existing masonry. And um, we found that although the, the balustrade at the stairway has a lot of damage and many of the balusters need to be replaced, overall the masonry is in good to fair condition. The terracotta that's on the building itself is mostly intact. The brick, it, the brick work is also in reasonably good condition, although it's very dirty, as those of you who visited the building probably noted. And there is also some biological growth. Um, so we anticipate um, repairing uh, the terracotta, replacing the badly damaged um, units, mostly the balusters, and um, giving the building a, a good cleaning, doing whatever repointing is necessary. And um, we've also surveyed the windows. The wood windows uh, that are on the second floor, the upper level, are also in good condition. They will be weather stripped so that they're watertight. Um, and as Andy mentioned, the windows at the um, lower level will be replaced. In the reading room itself, um, of course, the, the braced frames and the mezzanines will be removed, which um, will involve some plaster uh, removal and replacement. Um, I believe that much of the plaster was already impacted by the 90s um, work that was done. So this is a view of the reading room as proposed without the, the braces, um, pendant lighting and existing uh, locations. There's rosettes in the ceiling where there had been previous pendant lights. Um, and uh, casework around the perimeter renewed um, and then flexible furnishings inside. This is, these are views of the roof terrace. Thank you. That is yeah. your time. Thank you. Commissioners Great. may have follow-up questions. Sure. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Again, you need to come forward. Seeing none, public comment is closed. And this matter is now before you, commissioners. Commissioner Nugas Warren. Um, I really appreciate this design and how it's it's uh, you know going to restore the appearance of this Carnegie Library, um, and it's a reminder of reversibility and the ability to do that is is an important part of uh, rehabilitation. So um, it's uh, going to be beautiful uh, space and well thought out for the needs of that community. And as I understand, they work closely with the community to, to evolve this design. So appreciate that. Um, I, as we toured, um, I think um, my fellow commissioners had noted there were other openings, um, and in in the space that could be uh, re uncovered. Um, I'm not sure if that has been explored, um, and if they have further comment on that. And then. The glass ra railing on the roof, um, you know, uh, when we visited, there was a screening up there that's existing, which is a wooden lattice, which really is difficult to see through. And um, the the point of having a six foot uh, glass uh, glass screen is to prevent winds. Um, and I would say that um, if if that glazing can be uh, low glare, 
um, and not highly reflective, I don't think you're going to do that. But um, low glare would be probably appreciated by the you know view corridor um, on other roof roof um, uh, roof gardens, um, and then. I think that is all, those are all my comments. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Vergara. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to the, the rebirth of this beautiful building along the lines of that, uh, that really excellent uh, plan that you have. Uh, and I would uh, echo what uh, Commissioner Nagraswaran Nagras said about the windows on the north and the south walls of the original building. I think what I heard at the at our walkthrough was that it looks like the windows on the south side uh, the south wall could be uh, open to natural light but you're not sure about the windows on the north wall is that could you respond to that yeah so they um, we're looking into it after our meeting uh, there is there is a space between the the, uh, the west and the and the well, between the, the building and the adjacent temple, mm -hmm. uh, there is there's a gap there. So we could open that up. We have to figure out how to do it. Someone in our tour mentioned sprinklers, but we can look in, into some kind of technology and, and hopefully do that. The other window on the other side of the building is adjacent to an, an old building, and it appears that it's not, there is a light, a light well. Someone asked that question on our tour. I think it might have been you, Commissioner Vergara. And it, it is... Um, it doesn't seem to be lined up with our window for some reason, but we're going to verify that. Okay. And, and if, if possible, we'll, we'll attempt to do something there. It would be wonderful if, if all those windows could be open to natural light. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Wright. Yeah, I would, I would just echo that um, as well. Um, and I think even if um, you know, there's not a lot of light coming through, have it, just having it backlit and getting a little bit of light in um, will kind of... Um, add to the symmetry of the space and um, the quality of the space. Uh, I would point out too that we we spoke uh, in on, on the site about um, two original openings that had been covered over by the addition um, on the upper level facing west um, in the the northernmost bay and the southernmost bay and that uh, you know we're not I'm not really asking about those because it sounds like they're they're pretty covered with uh, the new structure um, that was built in well existing they, they new had structure been shot treated over right yeah, yeah. so uh, but just to point out that that those were original openings um, for the record and and matched the uh, the other window pattern inside so I think um, with the loss of those two openings, it's you know be even nicer to have the north and the south ones. Um, and then I, I had one other question that occurred to me, um, and I think this might be for Nancy, but um, this is about the balustrade um, replacement of the uh, the terracotta uh, stairs. Yeah, and I. I think that we might have talked about uh, the anchorage being epoxy coated or something, but um, I have you considered stainless steel uh, is something that won't corrode and cause the same problems we have now? Uh, we'll um, we'll look at, we'll look into that. Yes, um, stainless steel, by the way, does eventually corrode, mm -hmm. um, especially in our marine environment. Um, but we'll we'll look at putting in the most. Um, uh, Whatever's going to have the longest. Yeah, the longest, yeah. yeah, the best. Perfect. The best material. Great. Thank you. 
Um, I had two questions, and I asked this at the site visit meeting, but and I know that you have done undergone a lot of community um, meetings in charrettes, but um, this library is specifically used now for a lot of people who are of Chinese descent and placement, and there's going to be a realignment of rooms and things like that, which uh, are very important in the Chinese culture, and I just want to make sure that this new placement or new position of rooms is very culturally sensitive to the community, the particular users of the library now. And my second question, I guess, is more from Ms. Salgado about the new comment that came in about this particular project and if that has been addressed by the planning department staff or the project sponsor. Rebecca Salgado, planning staff. Um, yes, that comment was addressed. Um, the concern was about how the uh, new elevator bulkhead might block uh, light and views from buildings whose rear windows were facing toward the elevator bulkhead, um, kind of on either side of the library to the north and south. Um, some specific addresses were, were called out on Washington Street and uh, Jackson? Jackson. Jackson Street. Um, and so I... Uh, Andy prepared um, some studies with some further information um, showing how many feet away the rear facades of those buildings were from the, from the new elevator and uh, how views from those buildings would not be significantly affected okay. by the new elevator bulkhead. And um, a member of the public said they uh, accepted that and they would get back if they had any other questions, but I have not heard anything further. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Wright, did you have a follow-up question? I question, thought of comment? one more one more thing, um, and that's also on the tour at the end. We we were talking about uh, the window shading um, and you know, I guess shades that are, are currently there, and uh, the possibility of being sensitive. And it, I know that you guys are going to um, think more about um, strategies for that, but that uh, if glare. Um, is an issue that sometimes there are appropriate uh, uh, glazing films that help with energy and glare that aren't, you know, adding mirrored uh, reflectiveness or darkness to the, the windows. So um, just something to consider, but to get on the record. Understood. We'll look into that. Um, that's a good point. And uh, we, haven't, we haven't thought out the window yeah. shades yet because they have the center pivot windows, you know. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Motion to approve. Is there a second? Uh, can, can I add something? Please. Before? I, I, would, I would suggest that we move to approve with the understanding that, if at all possible, the windows on the north and south walls of the original building will be open to natural light. Or is that? You can add that as a condition. I, I, I accept that as a condition. Okay. And also Thanks. that the type of glass will be non-glare. I can accept both those conditions. And I'll second that. Good. <laughs> Thank you. There's nothing further, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to approve with conditions as amended to include that the north and south um, windows uh, of, of the original 1921 structure of the original structure are open to natural light and uh, non-glare glazing. Uh, at the um, 
roof uh, garden. At the roof? Yes. The guardrail. The guardrail at, at the roof. At the guardrail of the roof. On that motion, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 5 to 0. Commissioners, that'll place us um, on items 9A through H for case numbers. Request to recuse on 9A and 9B. Let me just read them into the record real quick. <laughs> Um, for case numbers 2024-000774-LBR, 2024-000777-LBR, 2024-000776-LBR, 2024-000779-LBR, 2024-000781-LBR, 2024-000782-LBR, 2024-000783-LBR and 2024-000784-LBR for properties at 2 Marina Boulevard, Fort Mason Building A, 2 Marina Boulevard, Fort Mason Building A, 813 Divisadero Street, 440 Sutter Street, 1700 Stockton Street, 1581 Webster Street, number 206, 1555 Fillmore Street, 631 Kearney Street, respectively. These are all legacy business registry applications, and if I understand correctly, Commissioner August Warren, you're requesting to be recused from items 9A and B, and Commissioner Matsuda, you are requesting to be recused from item 9F. Yes, that's correct. Very yes. good. Motion to recuse both. Second. Thank you, Commissioners. On that motion to recuse, Commissioner August Warren from items 9A and B, and Commissioner Matsuda from item 9F. Commissioner Bergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 5 to 0. Commissioners, before we begin, I just want to take the time to introduce you to one of our newest staff members who is joining us in front of the Historic Preservation Commission for the first time. We want to welcome John Dacey, who is a senior planner that has been with the department for three months, and he is working on our District 5 and 8 current planning team. John previously worked at the city of Vallejo, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, and the county of Kern. He attended UC Berkeley, receiving a Bachelor's of Arts in Urban Studies, and is an East Bay native. We want to welcome him to the Historic Preservation Commission. Thank you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Commissioners, Elena Moore, planning staff. We have eight legacy businesses today. Staff will present and afterwards, members of the public and business representatives will have a chance to share their stories during public comment. I will hand it off to Edgar now for the first legacy business. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Edgar Oropesa with department staff presenting the first two legacy business applications. The first applicant is San Francisco Camera Work, located at Fort Mason, 2 Marina Boulevard, Building A. San Francisco Camera Work is a nonprofit art gallery dedicated to new ideas and directions in photography. The gallery provokes discovery, experimentation, and exchange through exhibitions and experiences for all who value new ideas in photography. 
Since 1974, San Francisco Camera Work has offered exhibitions, workshops, and lectures focused on experimentation, unconventional techniques, and socio-political themes. San Francisco Camera Work supports and grows San Francisco's photography community and its supporters. As a longstanding leader in San Francisco's art scenes, its workshops and exhibitions also draw students and patrons from around the Bay Area and visitors from around the world. Staff supports this application and recommends the resolution to add San Francisco Camera Works to the Legacy Business Registry. The second applicant is Green's Restaurant, also located at Fort Mason to Marina Boulevard, Building A. Since 1979, Green's Restaurant has offered a distinct and ever-changing vegetarian menus dedicated to the seasonal harvest of local farmers and the organic gardens of its farm, Green Gulch, located just 14 miles away in Marin County. With uh, panoramic views of the Golden Gate Bridge, Marin Headlands, and local sea life, the Green's Restaurant's dining room features grand windows stretching from floor to ceiling and a spacious warehouse at Fort Mason Center for the arts and culture. Green's Restaurant is the county's first and most honored restaurant for gourmet vegetarian dining. Many customers come not only for the cuisine and the unique views, but as a pilgrimage to a pioneer, pioneering restaurant in California cuisine and the farm-to-table movement. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Green's Restaurant to the Legacy Business. This concludes my presentation. Next up is my colleague, John Dacey. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. John Dacey, planning staff. The third legacy business application we have today is for Everlasting Tattoo, a tattoo parlor that has operated for 32 years in the Western Edition and north of the Panhandle neighborhoods. Since 2000, Everlasting Tattoo has been located on the northwest corner of Visadero and Fulton Streets. Founder Aaron Kane is well-known tattoo industry for his groundbreaking biomechanic style of art and for his handcrafted tattoo machines. Together with current owner Mike Davis and Tim Leahy, the artists were innovators in the type of art that people were and are still putting on their bodies. The new school tattoo movement of the 90s, also known as neo-traditional or illustrative tattoo, draws inspiration from traditional American and Japanese tattoo art, while incorporating bold colors, exaggerated proportions, and creative designs. As the only tattoo studio in the neighborhood, Everlasting Tattoo is a staple of this commercial district and functions as an important social and cultural hub with its iconic glowing neon sign in the storefront window, residents are drawn to the store's atmosphere and cultural legacy. Everlasting Tattoo's emphasis on quality, creativity, and craft is a gleaming example of what a legacy business is. This shop brings joy to its customers and vibrancy to the neighborhood, helping capture the imagination of people and transforming it into art. The business is committed to maintaining their neon signage, highest level of body art, and identity as a tattoo shop and social and cultural hub for the community. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Everlasting Tattoo to the Legacy Business Registry. I will now hand it over to my colleague, Michelle Langley. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Commissioners, Michelle Langley, Department Staff. The fourth Legacy Business application we have today is for Jewelry, jewelry Collection, a 39-year-old high-end and high, uh, fine jewelry store, originally opened by Shirley Tong, at 214 Sutter Street in 1985 when she was 25 years old. Born and raised in Hong Kong, Shirley immigrated to the US in 1982 and opened a jewelry store to showcase the jewelry that her family manufactured in Hong Kong. A second location, 440, 440 Sutter, was opened in 1993 
in the ground floor of the historic Art Deco 450 Sutter building. Jewelry, jewelry collection sells jewelry made with precious metals and genuine gemstones, along with custom engagement and bridal jewelry, serving a diverse clientele base, including, a loyal, including loyal long-term customers, tourists, celebrities, politicians, business executives, and workers in nearby office buildings. While the original location closed in 2004, Shirley continues to run the business today with her husband and daughter, both online and at 440 Sutter. Jewelry collection contributes to the cultural fabric of downtown San Francisco as an immigrant, minority, and women-owned business. The business is committed to maintaining their high-end jewelry for wholesale prices offerings, their excellent customer service, and building lifelong relationships with customers. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add the jewelry collection to the Legacy Business Registry. I will now hand it over to my colleague, Elena Moore. Elena Moore, planning staff. The fifth Legacy Business application we have is for Liguria Bakery, a family-owned business on the corner of Stockton and Filbert Street, specializing in fresh focaccia and Italian flatbread. Opened in 1911 by Ambrosio Soracco, who had recently immigrated from the Liguria region of Italy, Liguria Bakery has been an essential piece of North, Beach, North Beach's cultural fabric for 113 years. Today, it is still owned and operated by members of the Soracco family. Liguria Bakery is one of the last remaining businesses of its kind. The dough is mixed in an antique stainless steel machine and baked in the original brick oven from 1911. The family still uses Ambrosio's original recipe from Liguria to bake their signature focaccia. To this day, many generations of families continue to come to the corner of Stockton and Filbert Streets to purchase this nostalgic focaccia. It is truly a one-of-a-kind business. Liguria Bakery is committed to maintaining their focaccia offerings, their signature white parchment wrapping, their brick oven and stainless steel dough mixer, and the iconic mural on the exterior of the building. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Liguria Bakery to the Legacy Business Registry. And the next legacy business application we have is for On the Bridge, an iconic Japanese restaurant located on the Webster Street Bridge in the Kinokuniya building in Japantown. The business is run by owners Mitsuhiro and Yolanda, along with their daughters. Opened in 1992, the restaurant was one of the first in San Francisco to specialize in Yoshoku-style food, which is a fusion of Japanese and European cuisines. Today, they are best known for their Shinjuku-style chicken stock curry, their beef stock curry, and Yoshoku-style wafu pastas, along with their extensive offerings of Japanese beer and sake. On the Bridge Restaurant attracts a diverse clientele of both locals and tourists. Many customers share an appreciation for and curiosity about Japanese culture. Fittingly located on the bridge, the restaurant is a true cultural connector. The restaurant is committed to maintaining their Yoshoku-style cuisine, their offerings of Japanese beer and sake, and anime film and TV show collection for patrons to enjoy. Staff supports this 
um, application and recommends a resolution to add on the bridge to the legacy business registry. I will hand it off to Maggie next. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, Maggie Dong, Planning Department staff. Um, the seventh legacy business that is before you is for Progress Cleaners, a 49-year-old cleaning and laundry business on Fillmore Street and Geary Boulevard. The business offers same-day dry cleaning, laundry, and alteration services, um, founded by David Yip. Um, he and his wife, Susanna Yip, immigrated from Hong Kong in 1970. Um, David founded the business in 1975 after training in the dry cleaning after training in the dry cleaning industry with his brother who also had his own dry cleaning business in San Francisco. In 1992, Susanna took over the business after David, David's passing from cancer. Their son, Sammy Yip, took over in 2001 when Susanna retired. The business has remained a meeting place for multiple generations of local residents to catch up and stay informed about community events. Um, the business is committed to safeguarding their dry cleaning, laundry, and alteration services, awning sign, and brick exterior. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add progress cleaners to the legacy business registry. Um, the eighth legacy business that is before you is for RNG Lounge, a 39-year-old Chinese restaurant on Kearney and Commercial Street. RNG Lounge is known for their salt and pepper crab, RNG special beef, and lychee martinis. The business is one of a few remaining banquet halls in Chinatown. Um, banquets are often hosted by families or community organizations to celebrate important milestones. RNG Lounge was founded by Henry Hung and Kinson Wong in 1985. Henry Hung immigrated from China and worked as a contractor before saving up enough money to open RNG Lounge um, as his first restaurant. Joe Ling joined as a co-owner in 1996, and the business expanded from only uh, occupying the basement story to um, occupying three stories within the building and adding a full bar and VIP rooms in 1998. Kinson Wong left in 2018 to start his own business, and Joe Ling retired in 2021. Henry's daughter, Chelsea Hung, joined the business as a co-owner in 2021. The business has supported the community by donating to nonprofit organizations, employing local residents, and sourcing from local vendors. The business is committed to safeguarding their restaurant featuring Cantonese cuisine and the restaurant's logo. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add RNG Lounge to the Legacy Business Registry. And this concludes the Legacy Business presentations. Thank you. Thank you for that. We should take public comment on any of these Legacy Business Registry applications. Again, you need to come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. Good afternoon, commissioners. Woody Labounty from San Francisco Heritage. Uh, we support all of the, all eight of these, of course. I just want to call out three of them, particularly. Uh, on the Bridge is an irreplaceable San Francisco spot of hospitality and culture. For many people visiting Japantown, tourists I know who come here, 
On the bridge is what they remember about Japantown. It is a sort of gateway to a lot of people um, to understand Japanese culture who come from other places and, and don't really have that exposure in other places. And on the bridge is what they remember about Japantown. Um, it carries that mall in a lot of ways to people's minds. And the other day, Karen Kai, uh, who's on our board, uh, told me that Patti Smith, the singer, is a, is a loves on the bridge. So I'm not going to argue with Patti Smith. Um, the other two, um, I actually wrote the nominations for, but I still think they're worthy of uh, being here. Uh, greens, you can find dozens of people more important than anybody in this room to talk about the significance of greens. And I just want to make a correction. I think um, when it was brought before you, the gentleman called it the county's first uh, gourmet vegetarian restaurant. It's the country's first gourmet vegetarian restaurant. Um, so it is a seminal, a unique, and in some ways a world-changing restaurant. And uh, my wife and I could walk in on Friday without a reservation and see, have views of the Golden Gate Bridge and have some amazing spinach soup. So thank you, Greens. And last is San Francisco cam camera work. Uh, so often we think of these legacy businesses as being associated with a defined physical place in a community. But here is a great example of one that's had to move multiple times but its importance is undiminished because of those relocations. This is a unique institution responsible for launching the careers of several prominent artists. And one of the prime reasons that San Francisco is considered one of the world's most important centers for creative photography. So thank you very much for considering these. Are there any other members of the public that wish to make public comment? on any of the legacy businesses. Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Commissioners, again, Commissioner Douglas Warren is, is um, recused from items 9A and B, and Commissioner Matsuda is recused from items 9F, so we should take up those matters um, separately. Commissioner Foley. Uh, we have a long agenda in front of us, but I, I do want to say, and I think I can speak for all the commissioners, that we're really excited when you all come up here. In most of these spaces, I've eaten or drank in, as you most of the people know, that's kind of what I do. And for CamelWorks, really exciting. I'm, I'm excited for what you've done. I'm excited for the future for you, and just super great work. So thank you very much. Commissioner Wright. Thank you. I would just echo what Commissioner Foley said and also um, add that, you know, some, sometimes uh, I know a lot of the businesses that are coming before us and sometimes I don't um, ahead of uh, the scheduled hearing. And I think that um, this time I'm learning about a lot of new businesses and I'm always excited to uh, try, learn about the new businesses and try, try the new businesses. And I think that really is kind of the point of uh, the program, uh, educating other, uh, other San Franciscans on um, these great businesses that we have in the city. Uh, so thank you very much for your dedication. Thank you. Any other comments from the commission? I just have one comment, um, maybe particularly directed at Mr. Carrillo. I know that uh, many of the 
small businesses come before you and ask for a lot of assistance. And what I would like to encourage is when they come before you is that they leave a piece of their business with them, particularly a menu or something that can never be replaced and that truly reflects their business. And I say this because I've been working on uh, an an archive project where we want to know what has happened, what has happened to a particular community, what has happened to a particular person, not at a high level, but at the, at the level that I think a lot of us can understand. And I think a lot of us, uh, looking back on this legacy program, maybe 30 years from now or 50 years from now, we'll see these pieces of memorabilia and local history, and we'll really appreciate the fact that these businesses really stuck it out through thick and thin. So um, I just encourage more of a purge of what they have in their own family history. And as Mr. Laboundi pointed out earlier, I think the legacy businesses are one way that we can get all people and all communities involved. For so long, preservation has been a very elitist world and many communities have not felt that their history or have been told that their history has not been important as others. So I think the legacy business program is a way that we can appreciate all neighborhoods and all peoples. So thank you. Motion approved 9E and 9F. 9A and 9B. 9E and 9... 9A and 9B. Yeah, 9A and 9B. Very Second. Good. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to uh, adopt recommendations for approval for items 9A and B. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 4 to 0. 9F. Is there a motion for 9F? Motion to approve 9F. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt a recommendation for approval for the for item 9F. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. And Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 4 to 0 on the remaining legacy business registry applications. Motion approved 9C, 9D, E, 9E, e, 9G, H, H. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to adopt recommendation for approvals on the remaining legacy business registry applicants. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas Warren? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously 5 to 0. And we'll place us on item 10, case number 2023-01148COA at 945 Minnesota Street. This is a request for a certificate of appropriateness. Good afternoon, commissioners. Rich Sucre, department staff. I'm here on behalf of Monica Giacomucci, and I'm also joined by my colleague, Vincent Page. The project before you is a certificate of appropriateness for the proposed project at 945 Minnesota Street, which is a contributor to the Dogpatch Landmark District. The proposed project abates work completed beyond the scope of work that was previously approved under HPC motion number 422. This work includes removal and reframing the rear portion of the first and second floors of the building. The project also includes reconstruction of the rear portion of the building and construction of a two-story addition, as well as modification of window openings and the addition of a roof deck. To date, the department has received one letter of opposition from the Dogpatch Neighborhood Association. 
Relative to this project and this building, our enforcement team is actively monitoring and working on this property as detailed in the case report. Planning staff has also verified all drawings and the existing condition of the site. Department staff recommends approval with conditions. Given the site history and work at this property completed without benefit of a permit, we have included eight separate conditions of approval that will assist us in monitoring the work on the property and ensuring that the elements are undertaken in reference to Article 10 of the Planning Code. The project sponsor is present and has prepared a short presentation. I'm available for any questions and this concludes my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have five minutes. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Suhail Shatara. I'm the architect on the project. I've been involved with this project since 2019. It went through uh, three different owners. Right now, it's owned by the bank. Uh, initially, uh, there was some opposition to the rear expansion of the building. Uh, the real, rear expansion, according to the neighbor, who felt it encroached into the mid-block open space, was actually existing since 1936 aerial photograph. So we got our project approved. Uh, the new owner came. We did some minor modifications. The envelope was still stayed the same. They went over and beyond the scope of work in terms of demolition with regards to this project. Uh, at the rear, that old structure was uh, substandard in quality. They removed more material than they should have. That's why we're before you again with respect to this project. Um, this project just on the overhead, um, I can show you the progression of this, this initially was the first uh, proposal with the existing conditions. We had replaced the stairs and rebuilt some of those existing conditions. Um, the one that was... Can you make sure you're using yes, the microphone? I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, the one, this is an existing condition right now, the way it was built. Uh, the stairs aren't included because the stairs were not built. But it's basically the same footprint as the one before without the stairs. And currently, it's, uh, we brought it back to the 25% rear yard setback, which is the 30% rear yard setback with, I believe, an encroachment which is allowed for two stories to the 25% rear yard setback. Um, the building basically looks like this, and uh, it's going to remain the same. Currently, the way it's built is like this, without the double-hung window on the second level in the front. And uh, the rear, I mean, uh, and that was the original uh, building at the front. This was a building that had a, a gable roof. It had burnt, I think, back in the f 60s or 70s and the gable roof was taken off. So there's been some um, alteration to the original intent of this building. I'm sorry, I don't have the photographs. I forgot to bring them. Uh, the building from the side elevations are basically, um, this is what's proposed currently, where the rear is set back uh, to uh, the conforming rear yard setbacks. Uh, Prior, this was the original back of the building um, with the staircase at the back, which is not there currently. And uh, the original building was basically like this with the back portion. Basically, the volume is the same, except we infilled underneath uh, the first floor. 
Um, so what we're trying to do is just restore the building. The building is a plight to the neighborhood right now. It's been sitting uh, in, in disrepair for the last four or five years. Um, and we're trying to bring it back and restore it with conformity to the, to the rear yard setback. If there's any questions, I'm here for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If that concludes the sponsor's presentation, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Please come forward. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Catherine Domaney, and I'm from the Dog Patch Chambers Association, and I sent you a packet regarding this building. Um, I won't go into the, read my letter or the details unless you'd like me to, but I would, have I'll just Thank reiterate our, pick, our concerns and community. Um, the various project sponsors, disingenuous permitting and serial violations that have occurred since 2017, the fact that a convicted building inspector known to have signed off on complaint, a non-compliant and unsafe work has approved work on this project. Bernie Curran is his name. Mm -hmm. um, poor site management, maintenance, and site production to the degree that the building condition has seriously deteriorated beyond being exposed to the elements. The site itself has been a nuisance and a hazard for more than two years and sits in a dilapidated state even today. And I've attached a packet with photographs, documentation from the last few days that we took. Um, and a lack of consideration and outreach to community in light of the above mentioned behavior on behalf of the project sponsor and the owners. I know it's changed hands multiple times. Um, we're requesting two things. One is that the HBC require the property owner of 945 Minnesota to bring the structure into compliance with the project sponsor's October 3rd proposed plans. We understand that this may be costly and time-consuming process, but we believe that it is necessary in light of the behavior of this owner or multiple owners and their architect, contractors, and DBI. Secondly, that DBI and planning examine this process um, that led to the seven years of incremental violations that were never fully stopped and consider a better site monitoring system that takes the community's complaints seriously. More aggressive action earlier to complaints indicating clear code violations may have ensured that this house did not end up in the condition it is today, which is a great loss for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, my name is Spencer Gosh, and I'm the complaining neighbor regarding this, uh, this travesty. I'd like to read a section of your code, section 134, purpose. The rear yard, rear yard requirements of section 134 are intended to, one, assure the protection and continuation of established mid-block landscaped open spaces. This project proposes to have a 25-foot rear yard all your surrounding properties have a 33 to 37 foot rear yard. <clears throat> I'm requesting this property be sent back to the planning department to have a code complying rear yard and mid block open space. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other members of the public? Just any comment? Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing none, public comment is closed. This matter is now before you, commissioners. Commissioners, Commissioner Foley. Yeah, this, I, I think everybody understands this. This this whole process really frustrates me, and and I want to say to the Dog Patch neighborhood uh, group, it's very frustrating when things like this slip through the cracks. I think the planning department and the planning 
code enforcement have actually done a great job and they're still doing a great job uh, through multiple owners and I feel your pain both in the neighbor perspective and the dog patch and I appreciate that you're so actively involved. I do know the architect I'm on the project. I have not talked to him about it. I would like to know, is it owned by a bank now? Who, who is actually the owner of the real property? Hello, Keenan Howard, um, Keenan Howard Realty. Um, the property is bank owned, and I'm the local agent for the property. Um, who is the bank? Who is the bank? Um, I work for Faye, Faye Servicing as an asset management company. Um, Wilmington Trust is the owner of the property. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Any other comments from the commission? Commissioner Nungus Warren. Could planning reiterate what the conditions are on this project? Hi, Commissioners. Thank you for the question. So we have eight conditions of approval. So the first one is prior to the building permit issuance, the project sponsor shall submit product cut sheets to the planning department preservation staff for the proposed rear windows, doors, and roof deck railings for review and approval. Number two, the project sponsor shall obtain an issued building permit within 60 days. Number three, within 15 days of building permit issuance, the project sponsor shall submit a construction schedule for review and approval by the planning department enforcement staff. Number four, within 15 days of the certificate of appropriateness approval, the project sponsor and or owner shall conduct an assessment to determine if the building has suffered water damage and provide adequate means to dehumidify the building. The project sponsor shall submit a report within 15 days of the assessment to the planning department detailing results of the assessment and proposed treatments. Treatments shall be implemented within 30 days after the report has been submitted. Additionally, all treatments shall be maintained and continued during construction if necessary. Number five, prior to construction and no later than 30 days of the certificate of appropriateness approval, the project sponsor and or owner shall protect the historic building, maintain it in watertight condition, including continued use of dehumidifying equipment as needed, and keep its overall exterior appearance tidy. The project sponsor shall provide planning department enforcement staff with monthly updates regarding maintenance, protection, and general upkeep of the property. Six, prior to construction, the project sponsor shall conduct a pre-construction walkthrough with planning department enforcement staff and submit detailed photographic documentation to the department to thoroughly record any conditions that need to be addressed. Seven, the project sponsor shall submit monthly progress of construction, maintenance of the building exterior in a tidy condition, and treatments of addressing water damage to the planning department enforcement staff via email with descriptions and photographs of completed work. And finally, eight, the project sponsor shall submit a schedule of period shall schedule periodic site visits no less than every three months with the planning department preservation and or enforcement staff during construction to monitor the project progress and a final inspection to confirm full abatement of all violations prior to final permit sign-off by the Department of Building Inspection. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the enforcement staff has uh, considered a, a lot of what the neighborhood has con is concerned with, um, and I think establishing the parameters by which they will provide a schedule and completion and protection of this building is is um, 
you know, established now. So it's helpful in that degree. Um, so I'm hopeful that with this um, final, you know, version of the building that we can complete this project. Um, so I, I'd rather not delay it further and damage the building further. I'd like to get established what is going to get completed and keep going with it. And hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have this completed and off the table. Um, my main concern is the water damage in the building and that it could um, uh, be a long-term issue with, with building materials inside the building. So that needs to be closely monitored. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Wright? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I, I think this is a, a pretty thorough list of conditions, uh, setting out timelines and expectations. Um, one thing it, that, I mean, I, I guess it will become more clear once the current condition is uh, assessed, uh, but is there any rough sense of, of when, hopeful sense as to when this might be done uh, so that you know, the neighborhood can have some uh, Kind of comfort, and then also um, related to that, I, it, it does sound like uh, there should be um, um, progress updates, uh, but maybe those are not. Uh, I'm I'm not sure actually if the neighborhood association um, is privy to those updates and if they could be, um, since there's been concern about this. Um, good afternoon, Commissioners. Vincent Page, Enforcement Planner. Um, it's really difficult with enforcement cases to know when everything will be fixed. Ideally, we like it to be done right away. Um, but I've, um, in my work on the enforcement team, it's just, you know, we have to use just monetary penalties usually as the incentive to make things happen quickly. This property does have um, a notice of violation. So if at any point during the enforcement process we see lagging on the part of the property owner, we would notify them <clears throat> of a 10-day, 10-day, 15-day timeline to come back into compliance, and then penalties of $1,000 a day would apply. And those would be in a lien on the title. So we do, we'll just have to hope that they can work with us, and then we'll follow up. Commissioner Vergara? You actually answered my question because my, my question was about the uh, penalties that we uh, endorsed at uh, one of our December meetings uh, last year. And I was wondering if those penalties are now to increase the penalties. I increase, yes. And so I was just wondering if they're in, now enforced and, and whether they apply in this case. Hi, Commissioner. I'm Richard Gray. Yes. Um, so the penalties that you provided and the guidance that you gave to our zoning administrator will basically give us the ability to enforce or apply penalties if we see that the sponsor is not in compliance with what the commission has approved or will approve. Um, also, just as a note to address Commissioner Wright's comment on the neighborhood group, the neighborhood group is more than welcome to reach out to um, the assigned planner, Monica, or one of the enforcement staff in terms of updates, basically to see what's going on on the project and how the project is meeting the tenants that the HPC may put on him. So. Thank you. Commissioner Foley? Yeah, I would just one say to the to the neighborhood group and to the neighbor is that luckily it's owned by the bank now. 
and the architect's going to get paid by the bank, and the contractor's going to get paid by the bank. So I think everyone should be operating in good faith moving forward is my hope, and I think reaching out to the planner is a good idea. So thank you very much for, your, for being focused on this property. I agree. I, I hope that the bank will be um, very aware of the concern of the community, and I, I really appreciate this letter from the Dog Patch Association, and I strongly urge you to continue to be vigilant about your monitoring of this project. Unless you tell us what's going on, we, we don't know. So I continue to um, urge you to uh, continue to keep us informed if you see something that is not a part of what we're possibly approving today with the conditions. Um, these are very serious allegations against this particular property owner and the property. So I'm hoping that the architect and the bank will uh, carefully listen to the um, various important and I think continued uh, comments of the dog patch neighborhood and, and stay in touch with them as this project goes forward. So I don't know this project has been continued. It is now before us uh, to be approved with conditions. Did any of the commissioners want to add further conditions to the COA? Most to approve with the conditions. A second. If there's nothing further, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve this item with conditions on that motion. Commissioner Regara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously five to zero. And we'll place this on item 11 for case number 2016-013156-SRV03 for the citywide historic context statement. African-American citywide historic context statement. This is for your consideration to adopt, modify, or disapprove. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners, Francis McMillan, planning department staff. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ashley Lindsay. Uh, the item before you today is consideration to adopt the African-American citywide historic context statement. Today's presentation will provide an overview of the project, revisions to the historic context statement since it was last reviewed by the Commission, community outreach feedback, and next steps with engagement, partnerships, and revisions to the report. The African American Citywide Historic Context Statement chronicles the history of the African American community in San Francisco from the Mexican and Spanish colonial periods through the present day. The context statement identifies major themes in the history of the African-American community and chronicles in the chapters listed here the founding of cultural movements, community and religious institutions, the gains and struggles of the civil rights era, profiles visual and performing artists and the venues where they created and performed, and celebrates the lives and legacies of black San Franciscans from the 19th century through today. The historic context statement identifies more than 40 properties associated with African-American history that are potentially eligible for local landmark designation, a sample of which are, are seen here. The context statement further recommends supporting longstanding community-owned businesses and institutions through the San Francisco Legacy Business Registry and Preservation Fund and the creation of walking tours, educational programming, and educational programming focused on youth engagement. Though the historic context statement is sweeping in its scope, it is not an exhaustive history of the African-American community in San Francisco. 
As a reminder, historic context statements are not intended to be exhaustive histories. Their purpose is to focus on the key periods in a community, neighborhood, or city's history, critical understanding the built environment, and provide a framework for identifying resources. The African American Historic Context Statement will aid community history advocates and city planners in the identification, documentation, recognition, and protection of buildings and sites associated with the social and cultural heritage of San Francisco's African American community. And as noted throughout the African American historic, Citywide Historic Context Statement, historic context statements are also considered living documents and are updated as new information is learned and the people, about the people and places important to San Francisco's communities. Since it has been some time, since, since some time has passed since the Commission reviewed the historic context statement, I'd like to briefly summarize the project's history and recent outreach efforts. The African American Citywide Historic Context Statement was initiated in 2013 and supported by a grant from the Historic Preservation Fund Committee. This project reflects the work of numerous community members, historians, and organizations, along with preservation professionals and city staff. The Historic Context Statement built upon existing African American scholarship, including that of Dr. Albert Broussard, Sue Bailey Thurman, Delilah Beasley, and others. A citizen advisory group consisting of community historians, activists, and planning professionals guided the completion of the draft. A draft of the report written by Tim Kelly Consulting, Vert Plank Historic, Pre Historic Preservation Consulting, Alfred William Consultancy, and Planning Department staff was published in January 2016, and in May 2016, the Historic Preservation Commission held a public hearing to receive comments on the draft. Public comment indicated that additional research and a more expansive document was necessary to present a more complete, accurate, and informed history. Following receipt of public comment, Department Preservation staff worked with the San Francisco African American Historical and Cultural Society on addition Communi additional community outreach planning and revisions to the document. In 2017, the HPC granted an indefinite continuance to allow time to complete revisions to the report and consult further with the African American Historical and Cultural Society. Major revisions to the context statement were completed in 2019 by preservation staff. And following the revisions, following revisions on the context statement, uh, in, Community engagement was put on hold due to the pandemic. Beginning in 2022, a series of, of focus groups were, were organized and led by the San Francisco Human Rights Commission and supported by Department Preservation staff. The purpose of the focus groups was to provide an overview of the context statement, discuss the potential landmarks identified in the report, and to learn about additional places of significance throughout the city. In the fall of 2023 and 2024, a series of community events were held to raise awareness of the context statement and to engage with community to learn if there are gaps in information and to ask how community would like important places recognized and celebrated. In September 2023, an open forum planned in partnership with, this, with the S San Francisco African American Arts and Cultural District and the Dr. George W. Davis Senior Center was hosted by the center. On January 20th, the department tabled at the Ingleside Branch Library as part of their annual open house. And a second community forum planned in partnership with the Booker T. Washington Community Service Center was hosted at the center in, also in January. The revised context statement presented at these community events addressed specific comments provided following the publication of the 2016 draft. These include 
expanding the history and significance, and significance discussions of Third Baptist Church, Bethel AME Church, and First AME Zion Church, admissing biographies of church leaders and the congregations they led, and their work in community housing, civil rights, and social programs, and admissing biographies of African American professionals, artists, educators, civil rights activists, and community leaders. Updates also included the profiling important civil rights and civic organizations, discussing the importance of community and recreation centers and the impact of leadership and staff at these neighborhood institutions. Also include additional details on long-standing businesses and community institutions. The revised report also, inclu also includes a forward by Carl Williams for the San Francisco African American Historical and Cultural Society, expanded histories of African American churches, the contributions of community advocates, leaders, educators, and public figures, an expanded discussion of influential civic organizations, sororities and fraternities, and professional organizations. Additional updates to the draft that extend beyond the feedback received following the publication of the 2016 report include additional content on African-American women leaders and African-American women's organizations, inclusion of sites associated with the Black Panther Party, expanded discussions of civil rights history in San Francisco, present-day anti-displacement efforts, and affordable housing initiatives led by African-Americans. The historic context statement has been revised further to note the designation of sites associated with African-American history, including the Japanese YWCA, Issei Women's Building, and the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, and the individual listing of Glide Memorial Church in the National Register of Historic Places in 2022. It also includes the recollections of jazz historian and actor Peter Fitzsimmons on his childhood growing up in the city's jazz scene, and an appendix featuring community leaders and organizations included in the report. As noted, the community forums and focus groups presented what is included in the context statement and asked the community what they would like to add, recognize, and prioritize for further research or designation. These questions focused on several themes included in the context, context statement, such as arts and culture, potential landmarks, community leaders, and organizations. The following slides include highlights from the generous feedback received at community engagement events and are included in the community input tracking report included in your packets. Community members were also asked who they would suggest we partner with to explore these areas. Suggestions for community partners ranged from individual community members to churches, businesses, social service organizations, and city agencies. We have one addition to the community input tracking report provided in your packets, and that's a table showing the suggested community partners, and that's been provided to the commissioners. These excerpts show themes that emerge through analysis of community input, such as gaps in information, people, organizations, and community events that are recommended to be included in the context statement. Department response approaches, such as further community consultation regarding research, recognition opportunities, and estimated timelines for completion are also highlighted to illustrate how feedback will be addressed. For example, under named leaders and figures not included in the context statement, Updates to educators, health workers, and religious leaders has been identified as a short-term goal as it expands existing themes in the report includes and includes information provided by community members and was raised at each community event. Updates to, this theme are, updates to this theme are anticipated to be completed over the next year. We also heard suggestions for further recognition of significant African-American sites and community leaders and neighborhoods throughout the city. This gap in information is called out in the context statement as an area for further research, and staff has been identifying and reaching out to organizations as potential partners to further expand these community histories. We also learned that the need to recognize the impact and legacy of redevelopment and to recognize the places that were lost. 
as well as explore opportunities to celebrate and uplift significant community members and places. As indicated here, we received guidance on landmark priorities for the roughly 40 properties identified in the report. And through focus groups, we received suggestions for numerous additional landmarks and longstanding businesses that may be potential legacy business candidates. Over the next year, staff will continue to make updates to the contact statement, including incorporating comments in the commission and bringing content up to date. We will incorporate the submissions of community members and partners, including a revised section on Booker T. Washington Community Service Center provided by the center. Staff will continue to strengthen existing partnerships and build new relationships with community members and organizations suggested through outreach. These include ongoing partnerships with the San Francisco Public Library and participation in branch open houses and working with the library on cataloging, cataloging context statements so the information contained in these expansive documents is shared more widely with the community. The African-American Citywide Historic Context Statement will also will continue to inform the work of SF Survey. Starting next month, staff will work with consultants Bridget Maley and Shane Watson to finalize their work on the Ocean Avenue Commercial, Commercial District Survey. This work will include incorporating information from the African-American Citywide Historic Context Statement to fully tell the story, fully tell the history of this commercial corridor as an African-American enclave. We plan to return to the to commission to report back with updates to the context statement and work resulting from, this, from the context statement. Finally, the item before you is consideration to adopt the African-American Citywide Historic Context Statement. Today, the commission may adopt the context statement, adopt modifications, or take no action, and direct staff to make additional edits to the report. As noted, we will continue with community engagement and partnership building and update this living document as community input is shared and research progresses. This concludes my presentation. My colleague Ashley Lindsay and I are available to answer any questions. But first, I want to acknowledge Carl Williams of the African American Historical Cultural Society and Christopher Plank of Verplank Historic Preservation Consultants, who I believe are both in attendance, um, for their invaluable contributions to this work. I also want to acknowledge our partners uh, with our community engagement, uh, the Dr. George W. Davis Senior Center, San Francisco African American Arts and Cultural District, Booker T. Washington Community Service Center, the Human, San Francisco Human Rights Commission, uh, this, and the San Francisco Public Library, and the, the contributions of, of planning department staff members Malik Looper and Taylor Booker have been instrumental in this work, and all the staff members who provided support at community engagement events. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, before we um, open up to the next steps, I just want to kind of conclude the staff presentation and then just acknowledge this has been a long journey for us, right? Long journey that should have happened and we're happy to be at this point. I also want to specifically recognize um, Mr. Al Williams, who is in the audience with us, as well as Carl Williams, who are both essential authors um, to the document and that helped basically get us to the point that we're at. We also have a long list of people that I want to make sure that we acknowledge and uplift. Um, this has not been a planning department project. This has been a community project. And this is something that we recognize needed to be a community project. Um, it's been too long that we have not recognized the important contributions of African-Americans to San Francisco. And we recognize that this is a big step um, in trying to basically uplift the multiple communities we have. Um, so particularly from the George W. Davis um, Senior Center, I want to make sure I recognize Michael Bennett, who was instrumental in putting together our uh, forum, as well as Kathy Davis and James Evans, um, Charles Adams for his amazing food, as well as the San Francisco Recovery Theater Live music. Um, for those of you that attended, it was great. 
um, from the African-American Arts and Cultural District. Um, Erica Scott was an amazing partner along with April Spears. From the Human Rights Commission, Dr. Cheryl Davis and Felicia Jones were both essential at helping us to create some of the community forums. And then also from the Booker T. Washington Community Center, Shakira Smiley, um, Erica Kimura, James Johnson, Brett Martinez, Whips Howe, Norshala James, Marvelous Lucas, and Chef Janetta Johns, who also, there's a big theme about great food that we got during these community events. So it was really nice. And then finally, from the library, I just want to recognize uh, Michelle Jeffers, Christina Moretta, Alejandro Gallegos, and Catherine Starr, and the staff of the Ingleside Branch Library. Um, we had a lot of community partners, and as you probably saw from Francis's presentation, um, it was a lot of work. It's been a long journey, and we are very happy to be at the place that we are right now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. Please come forward. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Al Williams. I'm president of the uh, Board of Directors of the San Francisco African American Historical and Cultural Society. And so as not to be confused, my name was also mentioned as part of the Kelly Verplank team that was responsible for the initial outreach on the, uh, uh, prior to the development of this version of the context statement. We're pleased to be here this afternoon uh, and pleased that this finally is before you for uh, some action. Uh, Carl is gonna speak uh, in just a moment. I wanted to acknowledge the fact that uh, uh, the, all the great work that's been done uh, to get to this point, uh, the participation of all the groups that were just mentioned. Uh, and saying that, would also say we're, the society is a little bit disappointed that we were not engaged in this phase of the, the process as well. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to uh, particularly comment on that we stressed early on at the beginning of the process as well was that uh, I think in the language that was presented in the, in the presentation, it was mentioned of this being a definitive uh, kind of a representation of the history and presence of African Americans in San Francisco. That's one of the issues that has come up over and over. There was a lot of concern at the very beginning that this not be perceived of, and I've had a chance to speak with a member of your staff, this not be perceived of as a definitive history. It is a document that represents a collection of some information and a representation, but it is not the history. Uh, and there was a lot of concern about that, so I would just urge that that fine-tuning, if you will, be looked at so that that is not conveyed in that, uh, in that respect. Um, again, we, the society, supported, supported this process and continues to support the process and wishes that uh, the commission will take favorable action in approving it so that we can move this forward and continue to do uh, the work um, that needs to be done. Uh, I, I think, it, and just as a point of an aside, perhaps, just listening to the, the testimony of Fonnie Willis, his father, in the Atlanta situation the other day, and Fonnie Willis 
uh, father testified that he has a long history in the Bay Area and he worked with Peter Fitzsimmons in the Fillmore District uh, on, on this film that he's doing about his life story. So uh, the, the reach of what happens here is much, much broader and has a worldwide impact in terms of the history of African Americans in San Francisco. Thank you very much and I hope you will act favorably on this uh, document. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Carl Williams. I'm a member of the San Francisco African American Historical and Culture Society. I'm also a longtime resident and property owner in San Francisco. I have owned property and been a resident at 708 Broadrick Street in San Francisco since 1977. Um, I authored the draft forward, which is in the documentation. And I would just like to say that in terms of the significance and importance of this document to the African-American community in San Francisco and as well as others in San Francisco who wish to be informed of the historic contributions culturally and otherwise that the African-American community has made to the city and county of San Francisco. This document provides an excellent process of acquainting people with that history. And I think that uh, in terms of my view, the importance of it, I summarize, I hate to quote myself, but I summarize that in the last paragraph of the draft forward that I prepared and was honored to be asked to draft this forward. And, and I urge your approval of it, and I appreciate your giving this document an opportunity to become part of San Francisco's history. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, first of all, I just want to say a huge congratulations to Francis for pushing this over the finish line. Um, and I would like to point you um, to page 10 of the, what I think is called the um, community input dashboard in your packet, um, uh, point um, areas of community interest about um, kind of finishing up the Ocean Avenue Historic District Survey. 
And um, given that Ocean Avenue is going to be upzoned to 85 feet, I would really encourage the commission to think about making that a short-term goal, not a mid-term goal, um, as is specified in the dashboard. Um, and um, Shane and I are very much looking forward to working with Moses. I understand that Moses has been assigned to the project and is working on it actively. So we'll look forward to um, uh, furthering that effort as best we can. Um, I want to make clear that our budget has been expended, um, but we will, in order to get that project over the finish line, uh, I am willing to volunteer some time, some time. Uh, I have already put in a great deal of time into that project, and it is a key component of understanding what happened to the African American community um, after they were um, sort of moved out of the Fillmore, uh, you know, and um, I think we really have to understand that history of Ocean Avenue and celebrate what happened on Ocean Avenue as a result of um, merchants and um, members of the community and um, tenants and landlords using that space for African American, for the African American community. Um, and I would also just encourage the members of the public that are here to stay for the next item because we will be talking a little bit about upzoning Ocean Avenue to 85 feet. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Woody LeBounty from San Francisco Heritage. This has been a very long road. Um, it started actually even before the Historic Preservation Fund um, funded the work on the context statement. I remember five years before that in the mid-2000s when Richard Brandy and I were working on the OMI context statement and saying, you know, talking to Minnie Ward and talking to Reverend Gordon and talking to Alex, Agnes Morton and Will Reno, there has to be an African-American context statement for the city to understand these smaller neighborhoods. You can't just sort of talk about the African-American presence in the OMI and not be talking about the Fillmore. Um, but I'm not here to complain. <laughs> I'm here to congratulate the planning department who has done an amazing job the last couple of years, especially in engaging the community meaningfully. I went to a couple of these outreach sessions and they were very well attended and they were very well engaged. The people were very well engaged. Um, and like Mr. Al Williams said, you know, it is not a definitive document and it should not be seen as that. Um, these are always called living documents. And what I think is most encouraging about this draft is the planning department has identified gaps has said, this is where we need to do more work. And so often these get adopted and then they're just sort of left on the shelf and nobody ever does any work. But now the roadmap has been inserted in the document. So with that, I think I encourage you to adopt it as it is, um, encouraged by the planning department's engagement with the community and, um, and that they see the roadmap forward to make it even better as the city continues to change. So thank you very much. Thank you. Last call for public comment. Seeing none, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, Commissioners. Thank you, Commissioner Foley. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Board President Matuda. I, I'd like to say to Mr. Al Williams, Mr. Clara Williams, thank you so much for coming out and actually speaking. Thank you so much for being involved. 
and all the other people that were involved that I can't remember all their names. It's pretty a pretty long list. And I, I do want to say to the planning staff, when you said it's about the community, it's not about you all, I was really pleased to hear that. And I'm pleased that we're here today, and I'm pleased it's a living document. So thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara? Thank you. It's, it was just a pleasure to spend the weekend reading it. Uh, and uh, I did have a couple of uh, questions, and I, it was a great conversation with uh, Ms. McMillan yesterday. And I know we talked about um, Mary Ellen Pleasant's trees and land, landmarking trees. Trees can be landmarked, but it goes through a not SF planning. Is that correct? Uh, Rich, feel free to jump in if uh, <laughs> if I misstate things. But I think things urban forestry that um, can be forest, yeah. can landmark trees and uh, um, Mary Ellen Pleasant trees are structures of merit under Article Ten. Right, and, and there is a small plaque there yes. right now. Yes, Thank come you. visit us in the neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I know it's, that it's a living document. Is there a, a, a timeline when context statements are looked at by planning to, to see what updates need to be done, or is it a, kind of an ad hoc thing? Well, our plan, as outlined in our community, the community tracking document, is to continue uh, working on updates and continue with engagement to, you know, fill in, fill in the gaps that have been identified and uh, continue, um, you know, as as updates um, as information is presented by community members um, as we continue with engagement. Um, so we'll continue to, you know, as a living document, it'll be um, updated regularly. Right. So we would plan on coming back after, well, over the next year um, to, to discuss the updates that have been made um, that we, that were outlined in the presentation and in the community tracking document. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. And uh, one of the updates that I did, did suggest, which I think is worth, I think he's worth mentioning here is uh, Supervisor Terry Francois, uh, the first African-American uh, member of the Board of Supervisors, uh, was appointed by Mayor Shelley in 1964. He had been uh, for three years the head of the uh, San Francisco branch of the NAACP. He was active in the demonstrations against uh, Palace Hotel and Mel's Drive-In and uh, Cadillac dealership on Van Ness Avenue because of their unfair hiring practices. And then once he was on the Board of Supervisors, it was only six weeks after his appointment that he ended up being the deciding vote to uh, stop the uh, Park Panhandle Freeway, and uh, the a commissioner had uh, a, I'm sorry, a member of the Board of Supervisors had actually switched his vote from against the freeway to for the freeway, so Terry Francois made the difference in the, the six to five vote, and at the time he voted, he pointed out that uh, putting that freeway in would have in involved tearing down 1,200 houses along Oak Street and displacing 4,000 uh, low and middle income people and tearing out uh, a thousand trees uh, on the panhandle and uh, for uh, then it came back after after it was turned down Mayor Shelley and Governor Brown and the State Highway Trans uh, Department of Transportation really wanted that freeway and it came back a year and a half later and uh, once again it was a six to five vote and, and Terry Francois was part of the majority to, to save us from that freeway so for that reason for his work in civil rights I think he definitely deserves uh, his own standalone um, uh, biography in that uh, really excellent report that you've put together. Thank you. Thank you. I think we all agree. Commissioner Wright. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I, I want to congratulate everybody that's worked on this. Uh, what a 
amazing um, volume of work. We see you have I, that I mean, in front of you. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I just actually wanted to um, say that uh, you know this is separate, really, from San Francisco history, but. Uh, I'm from a small town in Ohio and um, have been working on a grassroots, uh, with a grassroots uh, group there um, who's interested in saving a building. Um, and this building um, actually has uh, a, cultural, a cultural significance um, aside from just the architecture. And, and there are a lot of people that go uh, kind of into... Uh, the process, um, looking at history, and thinking really just about architecture. Uh, and so when I was there visiting, visiting home, uh, you know, they asked me to speak about my experience on this commission and my experience in historic preservation. Uh, and I printed um, and brought some uh, examples of the things that the planning department and uh, the neighborhoods and uh, cultural groups in San Francisco work on. And one of them was this volume. Um, and it was the, actually, it was the draft volume. It wasn't even, um, you know, this, this finished. Uh, so, um, and they, they were just gobsmacked. So I, I just want to say thank you again, because I think that this not only serves San Francisco, but it actually serves as inspiration for a lot of other communities um, nationwide. Thank you. I agree. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Thank you. Um, Mr. Williams Ford explanation is very helpful um, in guiding, you know, people as they read this document. And I, I, I found it very welcoming in that sense. Um, this work has not ended, as he said. It will continue in the identification and landmarking of resources that have been identified and those that have yet to be identified, uh, which are integral to the history of African-American experience in San Francisco. The contribution of Af the African-American community is to be commended from the development of jazz, um, the inspired genius of the musicians, sorry, and the evolution of religious thought and civic involvement to inform and advocate for their community. It's really um, inspiring and um, uplifting um, in, in this, you know, the fact that there has been a struggle is that much more special. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, this is a precious history and a remembrance um, and written history carries a weight to it um, and can continue to evolve with research and discovery with written history um, as a, a broader recognition of the valuable experience as part of the full fabric of the society. Um, I am most grateful for the concerted efforts of the community in engagement in this process and writing this monumental work. Um, I hope that this context statement will become a series of presentations that maybe you would have at the library or at the community center or uh, any number of schools um, to really reinforce to youth and adults the richness of history. 
history that has so many people involved in it that we are compelled to to be to be um, in awe of it. So I, I appreciate that very much, and I hope that in in the way that we express it orally, that it's it creates a magnitude that reaches um, more broadly to um, the overall community to really appreciate um, the African American experience here. Um, one thing I noticed was, um, and because I uh, work at a, uh, a Fort Mason Center, um, I know some of the history at Fort Mason, which was a military base that the U.S. Army had. And um, as you may know, um, about a million people, million African Americans served in the military during the Second World War, and 80% of them were in logistics. And it just so happens Fort Mason, the, the army at Fort Mason, was involved in, um, in supplying soldiers and supplies throughout the Pacific Rim and were run by the Quartermaster Corps, which was predominantly African American. And I hope that you will include that history in, in this work as well. Um, and I have connections to people that um, served at Fort Mason, so who were African American. So I would I would love to share that as well. Um, and um, congratulations! And um, I'm so excited to see this. Thank you. Thank you. And I just had a few comments of my own. I didn't. Eleven years is a long time for this to uh, be brought before us in a final document for us to approve. So that's and I. I don't know if I should admit this, but I was around 11 years ago um, when this kind of first started coming up and, and the discussion about um, how to move forward was introduced. And one of the things I noticed in the forward of the document that it's kind of just stops at 2019. Um, and I really think that there have been a lot of people to push it forward from 2019 to 2024. I mean, it mentions uh, former Director Ram, but um, this guy next to me, Director Hillis, really was one of the, the, the leaders who really wanted to push it forward. And I don't say that just because he's sitting next to me. I really do think that this was a genuine thing that he really thought needed to get off the floor and into people's hands so we could hear community input. So I, I really encourage that we mention not only the people that Mr. Sucre mentioned, but I think leaders in the planning department who really put some genuine time, effort, and resources to make sure that this moved forward. And then just in terms of the landmark dates, not, not to do any kind of self-promotion, but I think that from the uh, date that the social and racial equity priority took place to what you see in terms of landmarks that really deal with underrepresented and underheard communities and structures and cultures uh, saw an uptick. And I really think that maybe dates can help to reflect that. Um, and then this thing, um, the history was, I thought, very well documented. and. Um, I think that we need to further document that history, particularly history dealing with um, overt racism, overt discrimination, and all the racial covenants that uh, prohibited people from owning homes or from living where they wanted to live. And it's great to talk about it, and uh, believe me, I think we should talk about it, but I think what would help that conversation is to actually show these documents that were in place 
that made these restrictions. People, you know, people unfortunately don't believe that such documents existed. They don't believe that the city and county of San Francisco would ever promote racial discrimination. But uh, we know from, from real lived lives that that is a fact. And I think that we should further document it and maybe some kind of appendix for, for people to get further information because we want this document to be widely read and widely distributed and widely used. So I think with that kind of data, it can really help inform the process about what really happened. Um, I'm glad that you're talking about um, you know, what was missing. I think that's always important. And Mr. Williams, you shouldn't feel like um, you know, this, this is a, a done deal. This is a living document that will continue to live. And we will all hopefully continue to encourage each other to contribute because we can always uh, obtain more and more information about, about all of our lives. And one area that I think is a real hard and emotional spot in our history, in our recent history, is redevelopment. And redevelopment just really ripped everybody's communities apart, particularly in the A1 and A2 areas. And we feel it today. And we just heard about it in a recent move to get rid of a supermarket that provides essential needs to a community that doesn't have the means to go elsewhere. And that was redevelopment land. So we continue to be faced with what happened during redevelopment. And I know that there is this, this discussion about how we address that, but it's been a very important part, I think, of the African-American community and communities that were particularly residing in the Western edition that we should always continue to think about. And then um, finally, in terms of, I guess, outreach, uh, Commissioner Wright mentioned it, Commissioner Nagas Warren mentioned it. I'd like to see this document have a great uh, outreach. And maybe one of the ways we can do that is through, uh, you know, having a discussion at the California Preservation Foundation conference to have a full-blown discussion about this particular um, African-American historic context statement, because I think it should be something that the this whole state of California should be aware of. I also think that we can use this in the schools. We can use it. California Ethnic Studies is now part of uh, the curriculum for high schools now. And this would be a great document to accompany, I think, um, the, the information, because very little information. When you talk about communities of color or histories of color, you rarely see that at the high school level. You rarely see it at the college level. I mean, you really have to, unless you're enrolled in the Department of Ethnic Studies, really have access to that. So I really think that a document like this will have uh, a wide and hopefully effective use. And then um, just in terms of um, looking at the buildings, where we read so on so many hundreds of pages about those buildings that were. We saw very little that are. And we need to do something in our commission to make sure that we continue to preserve the R's. Is there a motion? Uh, yeah, um, if I could. Oh. Mr. Williams. Thank you, Madam President. I, I just wanted, wanted to say something, one final comment. And I wanted to thank you for your work on this, because uh, before you were in that chair, you remember the commission 
but you reached out to me, you reached out to other people, and this was, this was high on your priority list to get this done. And I just wanted to put on the official record our thanks to you personally for the work that you did in making this, because without your effort, I'm not sure we'd be here today. Uh, I appreciate what the staff has done, but coming from this commission and your leadership, we owe a debt of gratitude to you, so I wanted to thank you. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Vergara. Understanding that it's a living document that will constantly be updated, I recommend that we adopt it. Second. Second. Very good, commissioners, on that motion to adopt the um, African-American Citywide Historic Context Statement. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Negus Warren? Yes. Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously. And let's just five take a five-minute break. How about that?
Diane, ready? Okay, good afternoon and welcome back to the San Francisco Historic Preservation Commission hearing for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Commissioners, we left off under your regular calendar on item 12 for case number 2021-005878-CWP, Expanding Housing Choice Informational Presentation. Good afternoon, President Matsuda, Vice President Nagaswara, and Commissioners. I'm Lisa Chen of Department Staff. Um, if I could get the, the slides, please. Thank you. Um, so I'm excited to be here to provide an informational update on our housing element rezoning effort, expanding housing choice. Um, so today, uh, we'll be presenting the proposed zoning map that we submitted to the mayor's office, uh, and I'll provide an overview of the forthcoming legislative amendments. Today's presentation is similar to the one that we gave at Planning Commission on February, February 1st, with more focus on historic preservation. We like to open our discussions by centering our work on the people we're working to expand housing choices for. During the creation of the housing element and continuing into the rezoning, we've tried to uplift the voices of people who are impacted by our shortage of affordable housing. Low and middle income residents, essential workers, families, young people, seniors, people with disabilities, and many, many others. The quotes you see here are from a series of oral history interviews that our summer interns conducted, um, and they highlight just how universal our affordable housing crisis has become. The interviews are posted on our YouTube page and will be featured in an interactive website that will be released later this month. Uh, we, we all know and we all feel that our housing challenges have gotten steadily worse in recent years. In San Francisco, we've seen home prices double over the past decade and triple over the past 20 years, meaning that a household would need an income of nearly 300,000 a year to buy a home. Using the Outer Sunset as an example, in that neighborhood, over 40% of renters are rent burdened and are spending too much of their income on housing. Meanwhile, despite our growing investments in building affordable housing, we haven't been able to keep up with demand. The neighborhood has just 45 affordable housing units and over 4,100 4, applicants, which is over 90 applications for each affordable unit. The rezoning is just one of the central implementation actions of the housing element, which is adopted, adopted unanimously by the Planning Commission, the Board of Supervisors, and the Mayor, and certified by the state just one year ago. Under the Mayor's Executive Directive on Housing for All, the Department was instructed to develop a zoning proposal for submittal to the Mayor's office by January 2024 to ensure that we're on track to meet state housing and build the housing we need. We and other cities are working towards a mandate to build housing to meet our needs with the goal of making housing more affordable. Across California, local jurisdictions have been directed to change our zoning to make room for two and a half million housing units, including one million affordable units. 
In San Francisco, our share of this is 82,000 units, including roughly 46,000 affordable units. After accounting for development in our pipeline and expected growth, this leaves a gap of roughly 36,000 housing units that we are planning for. The state also requires us to fundamentally reconsider where we build housing to create more inclusive and equitable neighborhoods. We have and will continue to plan for housing citywide and expect to see tens of thousands of housing units built in the southern and eastern neighborhoods closer to downtown. However, under federal and state laws on affirmatively furthering fair housing, San Francisco needs to do more and we need to create the same housing opportunities in the housing opportunity areas uh, pictured in blue. These areas represent over half of our residential land, but only 10% of new housing and affordable housing has been built here in the past two decades. These are areas that are designated by the state as having higher incomes, higher performing public schools, and lower environmental pollution. Adding new homes here, and specifically homes for low and middle income residents, will be transformational for the families and households who will benefit from living in these neighborhoods. It's also no accident that the map of housing opportunity areas bears a resemblance to the historic redlining map dating to the 1930s. This map was used to systematically deny investments in neighborhoods that were labeled hazardous, shown here in red, which also happened to be where many people of color lived and continue to live to this day. Additional discriminatory lending practices also excluded people of color from obtaining mortgages in the more desirable areas in green and blue. Both of these maps reflect a long lineage of zoning controls, financial practices, and other policies that have been used for explicit and implicit purposes of racial and economic discrimination. While we have made real progress in acknowledging and addressing racism and discrimination, the reality is that, is that we are still living with the scars of these painful chapters in our history. San Franciscans continue to experience disparities in their health, education, income, and quality of life depending on their race, income, and the neighborhood where they live. It is this historical context that is driving the state mandates and our work to expand housing choices. We have been planning for a minimum of 36,000 housing units throughout the housing opportunity areas, primarily on commercial streets, major transit routes, and other large sites. Most of this housing will be mid-rise or roughly 68 stories with some areas and streets with, with higher heights. The city is also continuing to plan for additional housing off of the main streets. Policymakers have adopted numerous policies to enable accessory dwelling units, fourplexes and sixplexes, and other so-called missing middle housing types throughout residential areas, acknowledging that we need to build housing in every corner of the city. There are numerous consequences if we are unable to adopt, adopt the rezoning or fail to comply with other key provisions of the housing element. We may become ineligible for hundreds of millions of dollars in state grants for transportation, affordable housing, and other critical infrastructure. We could be exposed to fines and lawsuits, as we have started to see in other cities. And finally, if our housing element is ultimately decertified, then we would be subject to builder's remedy, meaning that we would be forced to approve any proposed housing that meets basic safety standards, no matter their proposed height or scale. We have spent the last year hosting a range of outreach events and hearing from thousands of community members. We've had to be strategic given our timeline and the broad geography of the rezoning, but we've worked hard to implement a comprehensive and inclusive outreach process with larger events like open houses, online surveys, and community education workshops, supplemented with more targeted events like focus groups, interviews, and community conversations. 
We've publicized our events in the mayor's and supervisor newsletters, on social media, in the newspaper, on muni bus ads, and on several email lists, including our department's list of neighborhood organizations. Our team has been especially committed to ensuring that we reach the populations who experience the greatest degree of housing insecurity, because they often face barriers to participating in our processes. This includes renters, families, low and middle income residents, people of color, non-English speakers, seniors, and others. Here are just some of the community groups that we've partnered with who have hosted focus groups and other events, and also help publicize our open houses and surveys and make them more inclusive. For example, by partnering on translation services and providing childcare for families. Notably, we've also held briefings and site visits with the Sunset Chinese Cultural District, the Castro LGBT Cultural District, and co-hosted a convening with MoCD inviting representatives of all the cultural districts. The zoning proposal that was submitted to the mayor and that you see here today is the culmination of not just the past year of community outreach, but also the multi-year housing element process before that and other local and regional planning efforts even before that that have considered how to expand housing opportunities throughout the city, such as the department's housing affordability strategy. These slides show the progression of the proposal starting from the housing element EIR project scenario in April 2022, the two additional EIR examples in November 2022, the two initial zoning concept maps from June 2023, the draft zoning map in November 2023, and the zoning proposal you see today that will be refined throughout the adoption process. Although the granular details of the map have changed and shifted in response to feedback, the overall approach has remained remarkably consistent. We've attempted to spread the growth equitably throughout the neighborhoods in the housing opportunity areas with a focus on the key commercial and transportation corridors, which generally have larger sites that are more likely to de be developed into housing and that also tend to have better access to amenities like transit, retail, and services. A crucial footnote on the map is that the heights shown here are meant to be the final heights, inclusive of any bonus programs, such as the state density bonus. In other words, we are working backwards from these heights and will set the base heights lower with the expectations that projects may use the state programs to get to these final heights. We're also creating an optional local program as a complement to the state programs, which I'll describe later. In your case packet, we've listed some of the specific changes in this latest version of the map based on community feedback and additional analysis. Highlights include the addition of neighborhood commercial districts that are also part of the mayor and super safai density decontrol legislation, which is being heard at the board. Uh, we've also added additional heights in various locations, such as Balboa Street and Franklin Street. Notably, we have also brought heights down in several locations, um, specifically to sculpt heights off of the main commercial and transportation streets. This includes areas around Lafayette Park, Russian Hill, and Upper Market Street. Taken as a whole, the feedback we've heard over the past year has been very polarized. We've heard from many people who embrace the idea of adding height and density in these neighborhoods and who push us to do more and add even higher heights. And we've heard from just as many people who worry that we are damaging the essential nature of some of our treasured neighborhoods. So we just want to note that we are taking every comment, every letter, every survey response we receive seriously. We've worked diligently to find a balance between these disparate views and are advancing a proposal that we think can build upon and enhance the wonderful qualities in these neighborhoods, and while ensuring that we build the homes that we need for current and future generations. 
we, we have many examples from throughout San Francisco of vibrant neighborhoods that have a mix of housing types, heights, and ages, as seen in these examples. And we also want to note that this is not a new idea because many of these same neighborhoods proposed for rezoning also allowed more diverse housing types in the past, including buildings that would not be possible to construct under today's zoning rules. Here are some visualizations that we are developing with our consultant, AECOM, that provide an idea of what these neighborhoods could look like as new homes are added. We know from other area plans that even after we amend our zoning, change will happen incrementally, and some, new, some sites may not be developed for quite some time, if ever at all. We will see a mix of old and new buildings at different scales, which is part of what makes cities like ours so dynamic. This image shows Noriega Street at 25th Avenue, showing a new building at 85 feet. And here is Geary Boulevard at 4th Avenue, showing a mix of 85-foot and 140-foot buildings. Uh, we have a few views of, views of Lombard Street showing conditions before and after. Um, so this first view is looking down Lombard Street, showing a mix of older buildings interspersed with buildings at 85 feet and 140 feet. So here's the before, and here's the after. Here's a view from up the hill, looking north to the waterfront. Um, so this is Divisadero at Broadway, showing buildings 140 feet tall on Lombard in the distance. So here's before and after. Um, and here is the same street, but a closer view at Divisadero and Filbert, showing 140 feet in the distance. Um, so we know it is inevitable that some buildings that are currently neighboring one- and two-story buildings will have taller buildings nearby. So we are also, um, in parallel with this effort, working on objective design standards that can help lessen the impact of new buildings on neighboring properties by requiring features like step-backs, massing requirements, and articulation of the side-facing facades. <clears throat> We've also been careful to plan around the topography and defining features of the city, and we believe the proposal that we are advancing will not substantially diminish the experience or sense of place in these neighborhoods. Um, so for example, here's a view from the top of Francisco Park showing the public vista before and after the rezoning. So here's before, here's after, uh, showing 65-foot buildings. Uh, we did receive questions after our planning commission hearing about whether the view on the lawn would be impacted even further, uh, but we've actually confirmed with our consultant that the view would be even less impacted at that elevation uh, because the buildings in the foreground would block the view of most of the new buildings and also because the slope does drop pretty steeply down to the water. But we will um, share those images um, from that elevation when we have those. Uh, and we're also going to be producing more studies like these at other streets and public spaces in the coming weeks. The final topic we want to discuss briefly is the structure and goals of the forthcoming legislation. Our team is actively drafting the amendments and will be working with the mayor's office and city attorneys to refine the legislation for adoption early this year. This legislation will include changes to the planning code, height map, zoning map, and general plan. We're also creating a local zoning program as a flexible and fully opt-in alternative to the state density bonus and other programs. Here we've outlined some of the rationale behind this approach. Although the state density bonus has been a powerful tool to enable housing production, it has also come with some unintended consequences due to the waivers and concessions that allow projects to sidestep some of our planning code standards. 
creating an optional local program will help create more predictability around urban form, including more certainty on building heights, since that is the most common waiver sought through the state programs. We'll also get more assurance on other outcomes by making sure that projects adhere to our code standards around topics like formula retail, active ground uses, parking, and others. Finally, the local program gives us an opportunity to create more diversity of affordable housing by allowing projects to choose among all of the inclusionary housing methods, including on-site, off-site, land dedication, and a new rent-controlled option that we're creating through the local program. Currently, under the state density bonus and other state programs, projects must provide all or most of their affordable housing on-site. Here is a simplified flowchart illustrating how we think the zoning structure will work. We're creating baseline zoning amendments, and from there, projects will have different pathways to choose from. In order to get to the heights on our map, they can choose from the state programs, including the state density bonus, or they can choose our local program. In either scenario, there will be multiple options for project review, which could include ministerial or streamlined approval. Here are more specifics on what will be included in the base zoning. At a baseline, all rezoned properties will have density decontrol, minimum densities, and a cap on maximum unit sizes. We'll be amending our heights using a two-tiered structure. This includes a local program height, which is identical to what you see on the map, and a lower base height that can be layered with state programs. So, for example, on the sections of Geary Boulevard that are shown at 85 feet would have a local program height of 85 feet and a base height of 55 feet, with a lower number applying to projects that use the state density bonus and other state programs. The baseline zoning will also include the objective design standards that I've already mentioned, and it will also maintain and expand our rules on tenant protections and demolitions, including hearing requirements and rules to preserve residential flats. We're planning for rules to protect existing small businesses and incentivize community-serving uses, and also working on policies to protect and reduce impacts on historic resources, which I'll detail uh, later in the presentation. For projects that opt into the local program, they will need to abide by all objective planning code standards, including height and bulk. In order to incentivize projects to use the program, we're providing a menu of local waivers. This is a predetermined list of topics that is informed uh, by the most common waivers and concessions currently sought by state density bonus projects, such as rear yard configuration, exposure, and usable open space, among other topics. The other carrot in our program that I already mentioned is the flexibility in meeting inclusionary housing requirements. So projects will be able to choose any compliance method under Section 415, so that's on-site, off-site fee, and land dedication, and rates will be set equal to, this, to the citywide requirements. So that's 15% affordable units if you're building on-site, or 20% if you're paying the fee. The city is obligated to review these citywide requirements every three years, so if rates are increased citywide in the future, that would also apply to the rezone areas. We're also creating an option for small projects, 24 units and under, to provide a 100% rent-controlled building in lieu of providing affordable units. Um, I, I just want to recognize that even though our inclusionary housing program is commendable and goes farther than many of our peer cities, it is not enough to produce the numbers of low-income and middle-income housing units that we need. So concurrent with the rezoning, the city has convened an affordable housing leadership council comprised of public, private, and philanthropic partners who are working to identify and secure additional resources to bring us closer to our goals. We anticipate that projects will want to take advantage of ministerial and streamline approval processes. Projects that seek ministerial review can use a number of state programs if they meet applicable criteria, and projects that choose a local program will also have the added option to use a new housing sustainability district. 
Projects that are ineligible for ministerial programs could also receive, um, could still receive streamlined review, which could include first application review within 30 to 60 days of project acceptance and environmental review through our general plan evaluation process. Some projects, however, will continue to require hearings, um, including those that propose to demolish rent-controlled housing. Uh, we've been developing our policies on historic resources, working in close concert with our preservation staff, including the SF survey team, who have joined all of our public open houses and have prioritized their survey work in the areas proposed for rezoning. The proposal includes three categories of policies that would apply to historic resources depending on their status. I want to read into the record that we have corrected some of the text in this table, shown here in red, and we will issue the correction in the case packet as well. Um, so the first category is landmarks and contributory buildings in historic districts that have been individually listed in the local, state, and or national registers. These properties would not be eligible for demolition under the rezoning. The second category are designated non-contributory resources in Article 10 and 11 historic districts. These properties would continue to require HPC hearings in order to be altered and would not be eligible for ministerial review, meaning that, meaning that they would undergo environmental review and would be subject to all applicable mitigation and monitoring actions. They would also need to meet objective code standards related to historic and cultural preservation, which we are working to add through the rezoning. This could include a number of mitigation measures from the housing element EIR, such as archaeological discovery and investigation, public interpretation, and tribal consultation. The third category of policies uh, apply to resources that are determined eligible but not listed in the local, state, or federal historic registers, essentially our Class A buildings that are not listed elsewhere. Some of these projects may still be eligible for ministerial, ministerial review if they meet the various program requirements, but they would still need to meet the objective code standards already described. The evolving landscape of state housing programs add further complexity to, our, to this work, as I'm sure you all appreciate. First, we want to assure the Commission and the public that the state housing prob, uh, programs typically do not allow for demolition of listed landmarks. This is our policy intent, and it's core to our local historic preservation programs, and we're working with the city attorney's office to develop these policies in accordance with state law. However, resources that are simply eligible but not listed are more complicated. As noted, we will still be able to apply mitigation measures under CEQA, and we are working to add additional objective code standards, but projects using the state density bonus could potentially choose to use waivers or one of their concessions to avoid some planning code requirements. These conditions are not unique to the rezoning itself, and they also apply to historic resources in other areas of the city. Um, so we have many staff here today, in addition to the rezoning team. We have Director Hillis, uh, Deborah Dwyer, Rich Sucre, Allison Vanderslice, and others who can speak to how the department is working to align our historic preservation and environmental review goals with these new state policies. In particular, we are in conversations with the Board of Supervisors on changes to our work program so that we can expedite the process to evaluate and designate landmarks, both in the rezoned areas and citywide. We've also updated our online rezoning map. It actually went live this morning um, so that the Commission and members of the public can see where historic resources are in relation to the rezoning. As of right now, the website includes landmarks and historic districts that are listed at the local, state, and or national level. But we are continuing to explore additional preservation data that we can add to this map once it's been fully analyzed and vetted. 
As we close, I want to emphasize, oh, sorry, um, last, one more slide before that. Here are our next steps as we work towards adoption. Um, so we do have a couple hearings on the calendar at the Planning Commission, including an informational hearing on February 29th on the Affordable Housing Leadership Council and an informational hearing on March 7th on the rezoning. We're also uh, planning to schedule additional informational hearings as needed, both here at the HPC and at the Planning Commission to delve deeper into various topics. Um, so in closing, um, we, we want to emphasize that we understand that these are big and necessary changes that we are making to our city, and that can be very hard for people to hear about and, and think about. Uh, but we do know from our past two decades of zoning changes in places like Hayes Valley, Dog Patch, Soma, Mission, Upper Market, and elsewhere, um, that housing and historic preservation do not have to be mutually exclusive goals. We can maintain what we know and love about our neighborhoods while we welcome new housing and new neighbors. And so with that, we want to thank our commission, this commission, the mayor's office, the board of supervisors, our city agency partners who have supported this work, and the thousands of people who have participated in our events and shared their thoughts with us. We look forward to working with all of you throughout the adoption process to sharpen the, the pro, uh, proposal even further. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed. Uh, with that, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. SFGov, can we go to the overhead? My name is Robert Mann, and I'm on the board of directors of Balboa Terrace Homeowners Association. About uh, 288 homes, 160 of them at least are Class A contributors that are intact. and. Uh, this view shows two or three of the Class A contributors on Uniparocera, and these properties in the current proposed zoning could become six-story buildings. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, I just want to let the commission know that the association has worked very hard over the last 15 years to preserve the historic nature of the homes in the association. Every single home goes through architectural review. We've partnered with Francis and other people in the commission to try and do that. And uh, this proposed zoning change would obliterate this view along 600 feet of Uniparocera uh, into this historic zone, including this uh, entry area. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Richard Brandy, and I uh, live in West Portal, so I want to just limit my comments, actually, to two. I, I sent a, a, a little memo about it, so I just have two points to make. In looking at the, um, the zoning map, there's, by my count, 195 properties just in the West Portal area that are in historic districts that would be slated to go up, which would give an incentive, of course, to, I don't know, buy and tear those down. But the other thing which has really gotten my interest lately is the West Portal Avenue. That's slated to go up very high. And yes, it is kind of a low, uh, low height limit now, but it's four blocks long and it's a thriving neighborhood serving strip. It wasn't that way when I moved there in 1986 and it is now. So I'd hate to lose particularly the first two blocks, which are even uh, I think they're 26 foot now. They were down zone years ago. 
those have a high concentration of small legacy businesses, family run. They and when you put in a big multi uh, uh, mixed use project, they're going to go and they're not coming back. And that 18 month severance plan is ridiculous. And just I, I want to just leave you with four examples on Market Street where we have eight I don't know eight or ten story residential units. Uh, they've been there for as long as 10 years, and all of them have only one, one of three different kind of use, a gym, a bank, uh, or a, a walk-in medical clinic. About half of those spaces are vacant after 10 years, and I don't want to see that happen to West Portal, particularly the first two blocks. That's why this plan is so broad, it makes no distinction. It, it should be much more finely uh, developed. This, the third and fourth block on West Portal Avenue, you could have a lot more flexibility. We already have some higher rises there, and it's not, but the key is the economic activity is must, much less. The further away you get from the tunnel, it lessens. So the first two blocks are very important, the next two blocks less so. So I would hope that we could somehow reflect that because we're going to lose those businesses and they're not going to come back, and that's the whole point of living in a community or a neighborhood where you can walk to services and you don't have to take transit or, or your car. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Monica Morse and um, my husband and I live in the historic Ingleside Terraces. Uh, we've lived there for the past 24 years. We raised our two daughters there. We shop, eat, and walk in the historic neighborhoods on the west side, West Portal, St. Francis Woods, Lakeside, Balboa Terraces, Ocean Avenue. Ingleside Terraces, as you all know, I hope, is, is a historically significant neighborhood established in 1912, one of the historic garden residence parks that citizens and developers of San Francisco had the foresight to create in order to keep families in the city way back then. Our historically significant neighborhood includes the Sundial, um, which is on the registry. We have over 50 houses built by Joseph Leonard. And as you just heard in the prior discussion, we have it, it, it is a historically significant area um, around Ocean Avenue. It is considered one of the most intact historic garden residence communities in San Francisco. This upzoning plan would install 65 to 85 foot wall apartment buildings across Ocean Avenue and Unit Brocera, eliminating the houses, as you saw um, in, the, in, in the image uh, about Balboa Terraces, eliminating those, those, those what I would say historically significant houses, they are on the eligible list, despite what our planning department likes to tell us about, it might be protected. Those don't seem to have any protections because they're not actually on the historical registry today. They're just eligible. So if you look at a, an image of this, there would be walls, 65 to 85 foot walls, along Ocean Avenue and Unit Brocera cutting apart these historic neighborhoods. It would do the same as you just heard in Balboa Terrace, Lakeside, um, basically, this plan is irresponsible. It has spread like pin peanut butter high rises across the city. As Mr. LeBounty said earlier, there is a false narrative that preservation is against a thriving San Francisco. This, the planning department would have you believe that they need to do this, but their at numbers are even on their own website inaccurate. There are already 74,000 of the 82,000 target, uh, target units approved in the pipeline. That's from their own website. That is different from the presentation you just heard. Spur 
has already proposed repurposing commercial to residential for tens of thousands of units. We should do that. There are existing areas where we have invested as a city in high rises. We should continue to do that. And some of those are close to my neighborhood, like Park Merced or around Ocean Avenue in Geneva. We should do that. San Francisco has the highest residential vacancy rate, over 12% in the United States. Rates have not, affordability has not improved. This idea that this is all about affordability is a false narrative. Look at the economics. We don't have a volume problem. We have an affordability problem. And just building more units will not solve that. Families will continue to leave San Francisco if they cannot live in homes. And these communities that this plan will destroy are actually going to destroy communities of homes. So please ask the planning department to take another look and be more nuanced in their approach. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. I'm Catherine Petrin. I'm an architectural historian and advocate for historic resources through my volunteer work with the San Francisco Neighborhood Theater Foundation and SF Heritage, but the views I share today are my own. Like most San Franciscans, I support, I strongly support, I strongly support the construction of affordable housing Strategic zoning, upzoning, strategic upzoning can be beneficial, but the current proposal is not strategic nor thoughtful. It's unreasonable in the extreme, and it creates an undue burden on designated historic resources. As an example, thank you. As an example, the Hosley Anthel House, built in 1886, remains one of San Francisco's best examples of Victorian residential architecture. Open to the public, it is regularly visited by San Franciscans, by school kids, and by visitors from all around the world. It's a city landmark, and it was designated a national treasure in 2012. Like many designated buildings across the city, it is also upzoned. The draft upzoning plan, now, um, the draft plan uh, showed this building upzoned for 24 stories. The final version, released last week or so, um, shows it as upzoned for 14 stories. How does that make sense? It, it just seems to me that historic sites, National Register sites, and Article 10 sites should be exempted in totality. I'm also a resident of Lakeside, the Lakeside neighborhood. It is a cohesive, inclusive neighborhood of 590 predominantly single-family homes, where 43% of all residences, 256 of the 590 residences, will be rezoned from 28 feet to 85 or 65. This house, designed by Harold Stoner, is one of 109 contiguous parcels. It says sound housing. These residences along Juniper Sarah Boulevard will be upzoned to six stories. On the west side of Lex Lakeside, another 147 contiguous parcels will be rezoned to eight stories because their rear yards abut 19th Avenue, which is considered a transit corridor. These examples illustrate the need for a revised alternate upzoning plan. I note Director Hillis's quote in a recent Chronicle article that the current map is not final. Planning staff will continue to work with residents to fine tune it. 
I hope that is so, but it has gone from draft to final with no substantive changes regarding sound housing and historic resources. I urge this commission to push back strongly. You have the power to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Stan Hayes, and I'm the president of the Telegraph Hill Dwellers. And I'm here today on behalf of THD's more than 500 members. For 70 years, THD has fought to protect and preserve the historic character of our city, this wonderful place that we all know and love. But today we're here to ask that you exclude from the proposed upzoning that's before you local landmarks and historic districts, as well as national, state, and locally listed and eligible historic districts and resources. Article 10 of the Planning Code charges you the HPC, with the protection, enhancement, perpetuation, and use of the city's historic resources. Under Article 10, then, you're being asked to determine and evaluate the significance of the Planning Department's upzoning proposal on those historic resources. And the Department has prepared an interactive figure showing their plan. showing their plan. However, it's hard to visualize, as you can tell, it's hard to visualize the practical impacts on neighborhoods from a two-dimensional map, a piece of paper, looking at what it says doesn't really convey what really will be the effect of these, these upzonings on actual people. And we're delighted to see that the department is providing more realistic representations, such as the 3D modeling. That's something that we have been doing for some time. You can see, well, maybe you can't, but if you look in the lower left-hand corner up there, you'll see that the impression you get when looking at the effect of some of these upzonings is, is, is maybe not quite as positive as what you saw in the presentation from staff. We'd urge the, the, the commission, we'd urge the staff to generate uh, additional modeling the, with vantage points that truly show the impact of, of these upzonings on people's actual neighborhood. And if you want to see what that looks like, you can go to a website. You can go to a website called nusf.net. That's Neighborhoods United San Francisco, NUSF.net. Go and take a look, and you'll see a representation of dozens of different vantage points. Take a look at those and compare those against what you saw today and see what you think. We also ask that you require the department to provide individualized information about the impacts of the proposed upzoning on specific historic properties. For example, the proposal would upzone the Haas Lilienthal House to 140 feet, that's 14 stories, and upzone the First Unitarian Church to 300 feet, 30 stories. The department has available an interactive map. Which I, I very much appreciate they're having put on onto the website, overlaying it on top of the, the zoning uh, map that they have. have. Um, we're very pleased that they're doing this. Um, please don't complete your review of the upzoning proposal until the information that you're, you're going to be provided has been made available to you. Thank and you've you, had a sir. chance to that consider is your time. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, um, President Matsuda and members of the commission. I'm Courtney Dam Kroger, former member of the commission. 
Um, I'm also a preservation planner, uh, and I submitted a letter of comment. Um, I'm here, I have to get the specs on. I'm here because I learned that the department's upzoning, uh, I'm concerned that the department's upzoning proposal will have a profoundly negative impact on historic and cultural resources, as well as legacy businesses. Generally, significant height increases will put pressure on these resources, leading to demolition, even with protective policies in place. I have lots of opinions about um, the zoning map and how it applies to resources in the city, but I came here today to specifically ask the HPC to actively engage in the process of forming policy for historic resources with regard to the housing element. Um, the staff report lays out basic protocols for different resource types, and they've changed since I was able to look at the staff report today. It was, um, we saw that there, are, there have been some changes made. Questions that should be asked include, what is the process if a housing project proposes demolition of a, re a listed resource? Um, and for those resources where um, the projects must meet objective code standards, what will those standards be? Um, how will those standards be developed? How will cumulative impacts to specific resource types as well as to historic districts and conservation areas be evaluated? And finally, with regard to legacy businesses, many are site-specific. Um, the department proposes relocation assistance, but that, and, and that's important, but it's not enough on its own. Um, so I recommend that you form a committee and you work with the planning department and the city attorney's office and San Francisco Heritage and you pound out these policies. There is precedent for doing this in the past and I think it's the best way to ensure protection for historic resources. Um, and while I, I'm really pleased that the zoning map has historic resources on it now, they are only designated resources, they are not eligible resources. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, I have spoken at the, at the City Planning Commission about this proposal, uh, and both Bruce Keene, a, a Russian Hill uh, resident, and I, an aquatic park resident, um, commented on the Francisco Park illustration. We didn't ask questions. We made comments about the fact that it was not representational. Um, and I, I assert that it is not and that the, the views from that park are not represented accurately. And I would like to register that with the department. Thanks for the opportunity to comment. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Woody Labounty from San Francisco Heritage. Um, I appreciate the the sort of on the fly work that the planning department is doing on this issue as it's starting to get, sort of seep into broader public consciousness and people are starting to ask pointed questions about what this means for their neighborhoods. I have a couple of questions and I guess a couple of comments. Um, one is I appreciate this new attempt to kind of create a buffer and a local zoning program um, to anticipate current state laws and what it would allow and sort of work that buffer in. The problem is, as we have seen, is the state decides at times, if it doesn't like the way things are going in San Francisco, it creates a new law. And so the problem with creating a zoning height at this point and hoping or sort of anticipating that the state won't suddenly change the rules again, um, we're baked in with that zoning height. And I'm really just talking about historic resources at this point, not the broader issues. 
Um, but I don't want to like have a, a historic resource, and I already know there's one I heard about this morning that is trying to take advantage of AB 2011 um, to demolish a historic resource, a listed historic resource for, for affordable housing. I want affordable housing too, but we need to like bake in uh, protections for the resources that we have spent decades creating programs and policies to protect. Um, and they can't just be overrun by a new bill that comes and is passed in one year. So I guess I'm trying to anticipate what the state is going to do seems a little bit like a fool's errand. Um, and so I would try to take that into account when putting these buffers in. Uh, the other thing is we've worked very hard on racial and social equity. The presentation, unfortunately, kind of sets it up like we're, this will move racial and social, social equity forward by allowing for more house or more buildings. Um, what it kind of misses is we have a good chance of losing some of the gains we've had with the cultural districts and with the legacy businesses. Um, and I, I appreciate the map, too, that shows resources. I'm not sure if it has legacy businesses as part of that or recognizes the cultural districts. But we put a lot of work into creating these cultural districts and expanding preservation outside of buildings. And do, does this new zoning map uh, accurately and adequately take that into account? Um, so those are sort of the questions. And I know it's all a work in process. I appreciate the effort that's being put in here to fine tune this. Um, but this is the place where we talk about historic resources. And so those are the sort of the issues I would have you consider. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for this opportunity. My comments are probably a little more simplistic than the others, and some you've heard already, but uh, these are comments from my neighborhood. My name is Janet Monfredini, and I'm uh, representing the St. Francis Homes Association, an organization of 561 households in St. Francis Wood, which was listed on the National Register of Historic Places as a historic district in June of 2022. Our neighborhood, as well as this same commission, unanimously supported the historic district designation. Any upzoning of our neighborhood could easily result in impacts to historic resources that contribute to our designation. We object to the noted upzoning along Unipro-Sara Boulevard and Portola Drive. Equally upsetting to us is the drastic upzoning along West Portal and Ocean Avenues. These historic neighborhood commercial streets have generally low and small scale bu buildings that are home to many of our city's small businesses, some legacy. Upzoning will only force out many and will disrupt others that attempt to stay and possibly result in buildings extremely out of scale with the neighboring residential neighborhoods. Further, sections of West Portal and Ocean clearly qualify as historic with Ocean Avenue as one example, is having a full historic district evaluation already completed. These walkable, historic commercial corridors are a deep part of our city's fabric. As you know, we limit formula retail in neighborhood commercial zones. What small business is gonna be able to afford rent in the base of an eight-story market rate building? Please consider the upzoning impact of major thoroughfares such as Terravel and 19th Avenue, where eight full city blocks are upzoned, including vast swaths of existing historic residential housing. 
and this potential impact affects well beyond our western borders. Please have planning reevaluate and require public outreach on this excessive program that will drastically impact historic buildings across our city. The residents of the west side of our city and beyond deserve to know we have the respect and support of our city officials uh, relating to our ability to enjoy the neighborhoods we selected as our homes and respect their history, architecture, and the neighborhood ambiance that has made our city special. So thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna use the overhead. SFGov, can we go to the overhead, please? Great, thank you. Um, well, thank you for this opportunity to comment. Um, a couple things. Um, what I worry about most is that currently, the zoning maps show the zoning overlay on top of the resources that are already designated. They don't go around them, they overlay over them. What I think you're hearing from many of us in the room is we want the, the maps to clearly go around the historic resources that are already designated. So I'm going to give you some visual examples. This is the Ingleside Presbyterian Church, a significant African-American related uh, community resource on Ocean Avenue. It is one of the two anchors of the um, landmarks on Ocean Avenue. The other is the El Rey Theater. Both of these would be upzoned to eight stories. Everything around them would be upzoned to eight stories along Ocean Avenue. Um, there is an identified historic district along Ocean Avenue that Shane Watson and I worked on very diligently. You have yet to ever hear that designation. We hope someday that you do. But it would be upzoned to eight stories. Some other examples from across the city. This is the Octagon House at Union and Goff, upzoned to six stories. The, Dutton, uh, the Talbot Dutton House at 2200 Franklin, upzoned to 14 stories. St. Bridget's Church um, and the Dutton, uh, Talbot Dutton House share a block, which also includes the St. Bridget's School. This entire block is upzoned to either 24 or 14 stories. The entire block. This is the Roosevelt Middle School. 14 stories along Geary. That would be double the height of that building you see right there, right here. That's a designated landmark. The Burr House, 1772 Vallejo, up zoned to eight stories. The Richmond branch of the Carnegie Library increased density on this site. Why? It's a public site. Why would you increase the density on this site? Similarly, the Sunset branch of the Carnegie Library is drawn around, probably because there's a school there also on that block. But why would we up zone these parcels that are city owned? Can't we draw the maps around them? This is the um, uh, Grabhorn Press Building, which now houses the St. Luke's School Preschool, which has a play area right here. But right adjacent to it, and even right next to it, um, or even it, this building could be upzoned to 300 feet. 300 feet. So for those of you in the audience, and for those of you out there on SFGov, if you're concerned about this, this is the website you can go to. Thank you.
Good afternoon, commissioners. Good afternoon, Director Hillis. Uh, my name is Tia Lombardi. I'm a member of the board of San Francisco Architectural Heritage, but I'm speaking today um, as a resident from District 3. Much of what I had prepared to say has been said and said much, much better, but I'd like to echo one um, suggestion and echo it strongly, that this commission dig deep into this plan, bring the values that you represent to it as an important overlay. And in the spirit of all that we've heard today, especially, you can see that there's, this is the kind of thing that can really tear communities apart. So I hope you'll take that suggestion seriously. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing none, public comment is closed. And this informational matter is now before you, commissioners. Thank you. Commissioner Foley. Hi, thank you, President Matsuda. Um, I, I would just like to, I'd like to say a couple things. I'd, I'd like to say a bunch of things, actually. One, I really respect Telegraph Low Dwellers and what you guys do. I respect the neighborhood groups, what you do. I respect heritage. Um, I also respect the planning staff, the planning department, the work they're doing. And I think at the end of the day, we can all disagree on a lot of things, but I think we should actually disagree and have discourse respectfully. I don't think it makes any sense to attack someone who's trying to do a job. And I just, I just don't like it, and I just want to call it out. Second, it's an information hearing only. We're not making a decision. We're not, we're not supposed to make a decision. Um, and the massing studies we showed or, or are shown are ugly. They're grim. Every massing study I've ever seen is really ugly and grim. So I think it'd be interesting to see a building that's well-designed contextually um, versus just a massing study. But I think at the end of the day, I appreciate everybody's difference of opinion, but I think we need to respect the people that are doing the work. They're actually, they have a, they have a specific big challenge they're trying to do. They have directives they're trying to manage. Um, I respect the planning staff and what you're trying to do. I respect the neighborhood groups, and we should all just be a little bit more respectful. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Nugas Warren. Um, there's a lot to say about this. I, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I received all the emails and forwarded them to planning staff. Um, they hopped on putting, you know, the historic resources on the map so we could have this conversation about uh, what's being, you know, um, affected. Um, and I think it's it's a good conversation to have. There's obviously people are, are, are getting wind of this, even though it, ha it, it has been there and has been discussed all last year. I think a lot of people showed up for Castro Theater, but I heard crickets at the housing element. So I, I'm glad that there is more attention paid to this um, and more uh, discussion. And I really appreciated the, um, the suggestion um, of uh, uh, Courtney Damkroger of having a, a, a coalition or a community involvement. And I think um, uh, Planner Chen had mentioned that there is a group and maybe some other groups can be incorporated into that, um, such as our, uh, San Francisco's Architectural Heritage or other entities that can have some say in that planning process. Um, there's a lot to clarify in this process, which I think um, would help the public and help 
the planners clarify so that we know what to advocate for, what we can control, what we can't control. Um, and uh, I think the presentation that Planner Chen had laid out is, is responding to a lot of the questions I forwarded to her and, and appreciate that response. Um, I think we need to continue to have that conversation. Um, I, you know, you know, I spent the last few days um, just saying, we're gonna get it, here it comes, it's coming, the tidal wave's coming. Let's, let's make sure we prepare all these um, answers to these questions. So they did their best to do that in a short amount of time. Um, I, what I, you know, I'm hearing and want to kind of get feedback on in the next, um, you know, a uh, couple of weeks is um, this, this plan um, that you presented, um, just to clarify, there, I, I myself am a little confused, so I want to clarify it for myself, but also for the public. The 82,000 units from it are the amount of uh, housing units required under the housing element to get state funding. And there was, uh, in the presentation, there was a number of 46,000 and then there was a number of 36,000. Can you please explain 46,000 must be affordable housing and then you said a shortfall of 36,000, which is the difference between 82 and 45? Or what is the, can you explain that a little bit? Yes, apologies for making everyone do mental math <laughs> out loud. Um, so I, uh, we have a diagram that I think would be helpful that I'm happy to send to the commission uh, because it's, it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that because we have the 82,000 um, unit RENA requirement. And that's market rate plus affordable. Yes, it's okay. all incomes. And then we add on top of that a 15% buffer um, so that accounts for the fact that, you know, even though we identify, you know, here's the likely low income sites or the sites that satisfy our low income requirement, et cetera, we don't actually know what sites are going to develop at, what, in right. what income level they're going to develop at when we set the rezoning. And so that buffer allows for some of that. The buffer is above 82,000. Above 000. the 82,000 units. And then it, from that, we subtract our pipeline, but we have to make adjustments because we're trying to. What is pipeline? Our, so it's our, our development pipeline. So it's projects that are in various stages of approval. Um, currently. Currently, yeah. So that was, I, I think some people reference, you know, this 72,000 units. Um, so that, that's everything. But then the state actually requires that we substantiate what we think can actually be built in the next eight years, which is the housing element cycle. And there was actually a fair amount of, of scrutiny um, during the, the adoption process of the housing element um, in order to adjust what that number that we can actually count is. So I think the number that we actually are able to count against the 82,000 units was about 55,000 units. Um, and so that's how you get the gap of 36,000 units. And then even within that 36,000 units, there is a gap. It's allocated among the income levels. So there's the above moderate, the moderate, and the low income. So 36,000 is referring to affordable housing. It's, a, it's the entire gap. And so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the low-income gap is around 20,000, and then the rest is allocated, or the 20,000 is low and moderate, and then the, the rest is, is above mod. Okay, I look forward to this diagram that yeah. you're going to send us. <laughs> it was at our open um, houses too, but it's, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, I also wanna ask, I see, I see this map that you've shown us, um, and 
I'm just curious, what about this downtown area? What happened with that, you know, with the financial district and rezoning that area? Yeah. Um, so as, as we kind of noted, the, the state's charge is really to affirmatively further fair housing, which is specifically looking at how we can add housing in the well-resourced and the housing opportunity areas um, on the west and north and center parts of the city. Um, and that is, does not mean that we are not planning for housing elsewhere. The, the reality is we've actually kind of done the work there already. So downtown already allows housing. There's been a lot of work to, to really try to um, you know, encourage more conversion of, of office into housing, for example. Um, the Eastern Neighborhoods plans allow a, a great amount of housing. So we actually expect that fully half or more of the housing over this housing element period will happen outside of the rezoned areas that we're discussing. Where are we in the number in the financial district in terms of uh, going towards that 82,000? Joshua Switzky with planning staff. So the, the board uh, recently passed some legislation to encourage and, and facilitate conversions of office space. Um, as you might have been reading in the press, it's still a, it's a still very expensive and, and complicated um, thing to do, um, even though we've made the planning code not a, a barrier anymore. And so we don't necessarily expect a lot of conversions to happen, in, at least in the near term. Um, so it's a little bit of an open question how much, you know, the planning code is actually spurring and how much we could actually count towards, towards our, our, our gap. What does area contain? How, how many potential units does the rezoned area of, of the downtown? financial district? Yeah. Um, well, just, uh, it, we don't have a, a, a solid number yet. I mean, theoretically, you could convert any office building, but... Um, right, but the, you're, the city, we're talking about... Uh, an area of downtown. What's the expanse of that area? Uh, the expanse is all of downtown, actually. All the, of downtown. the legislation okay. applied to the entire CTU district plus actually south of market. Um, so there, there's a very large pool there, but how much of it actually we could theoretically count, you know, how the state would allow us to count is, is very much a, a question. The, the city did um, issue a, a, an RFP or an RFI, a request for information from interested property owners and project sponsors who are interested in converting office buildings now that the legislation has passed to see what the city could additionally do to help them along. And there was a pretty small pool of, of interested parties, uh, I think uh, about eight or, eight or 10, maybe totaling about 1,000 units, of which maybe only a couple of projects are maybe real. Within that, we've had one conversion, I think, the, the two, the Warfield building and one other small building. So it's it's not a huge number that we would expect to be able to count. We will ultimately, when we submit to the state our rezoning plans, we'll probably count some small amount in there, but it, it's not gonna materially change the, 30, the magnitude of our 36,000 gap. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just based on the evidence that we'd be able to substantiate. What can we do in terms of protecting historic resources from demolition can we rezone around them as suggested, or can we, uh, and are we in the process of getting uh, uh, the State Office of Historic Preservation to put landmarks and historic districts on the California Register? Early on in the presentation, it sounded like no landmarks and local, lack 
local landmarks and districts are protected, but that is not what I've been hearing. And so I just want to clarify that. Can we just clarify that? Sure, Commissioner, I can take that question. So the most of the state programs protect the demolition of local, state, and federal historic register. Say that one more time. The most of the state housing programs have carve outs for the demolition of local, state, and national historical buildings that are listed in those. Carve outs meaning that they they're are not eligible. If they they're are proposing, not eligible for correct. a state bonus. Correct. Well, no. State density the state, bonus. The or state, state housing ministerial streamlining programs. Okay. The state density, the state density bonus only protects buildings that are listed in the California Register. So, okay. so if a, a building is proposing demolition of a listed California Register building, then they are not allowed to use the state density bonus. No. Well, and I, I mean, just to be clear, if you, state density bonus and ministerial approval are two different things. One is an approval path. One allows you to do additional housing on a site and take advantage of, um, density bonus to add housing and get waivers and incentives and concessions. So if you are, let's take the hospital and tall house, if that was zoned, zoned taller, I mean, this, that's different because I think it's listed beyond just locally. But if it's just locally listed, you couldn't get that approved ministerially. You couldn't come in approved. You couldn't approve what? Demolition? Or, or anything to that project. Or anything, okay. Yeah. So you couldn't come in and propose an alteration or a demolition of that project and get that approved ministerially. You could propose a state density bonus project on that site, but if it's not coupled with a ministerial approval, you would still have to approve a, condition, a, a certificate of appropriateness on that site. It's listed. You couldn't come in tomorrow and just say, I'm gonna take advantage of some additional height that's on this site, add to it without getting your approval uh, through a C of A. For that project and you've got that discretionary approval so you so you can take action on that site much like you did take the sacramento street project that did not above but it added adjacent to it and connected with that project you approved a c of a in that in that project and again you have discretion if it's altering the resource if it's demoing the resource you have discretion in that project to and say we, yes we or have no discretion on the detailing of of the facades um, and the height. Yeah, I mean, to the extent your discretion, you know, is under Article 10. You usually, look at the Secretary standards. Does it impact the resource? Is the question before you? You still have that discretion under a state density bonus project that's not. That's in an article. That's in an article ten. That's using an article ten, or, or is that the site at an article ten landmark building? That's because that building can't. I mean, that can't use a ministerial approval process. Right. And I think maybe just to add to what um, both the director and uh, uh, Mr. Sergey have said is that I think what we're trying to make distinct, but is is challenging, is that there are a myriad of state laws that have been passed in the last several years, in particular that treat different types of historic resources differently. So there's quite the patchwork there. And so depending on what law a project is taking advantage of, the, um, the way that a resource is treated is different. So that's confusing, number one. And then what we are trying to do, and I think to make distinct for commissioners and for the public, is that the local program that's proposed as part of this rezoning does a great deal to respect our local, national, and state historic registered districts 
the landmarks that are contained therein. And that I think was one of the slides um, that Ms. Chen shared that is about the local program. However, that local program is local. And so if someone is using, a project sponsor is using a state uh, law, then it could be different than what we're proposing for the rezoned areas. So, um, and some of those state laws are in place now today, whether we rezone or not, um, they have impact um, you know, resources as well. Right, okay. So, just, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. just getting back to what Lisa said earlier too, we think the best protection is to list buildings that we believe are landmarks in Article 10, or in, in also potentially list them at the state, with the state and, yeah. and federally, but list them, yeah. right? Just by virtue of the, their, them being eligible doesn't yeah. necessarily protect them, whether they're in areas we're rezoning or whether they're in areas we've already rezoned over the last several decades. The best way to protect them, given current state law, is mm -hmm. to list them. Yep. Right. So, where are we with with um, um, the Shippo's office? We've still been waiting for guidance from the State Historic Preservation Office. I reached out to them in mid-January, and they are still pending, basically providing guidance to local governments on how to address this issue. So, I do know that the OHP recently has been suffering from some staffing shortages due to some retirements of some very long-time staff. So we're still waiting is the short answer. But regardless, too, we should list them locally. And we're talking mm -hmm. to supervisors, you know, and shifting some of our resources so we're not just looking at what our current Bs and deciding whether they're As or Cs, deciding what to list locally. Because, again, that's the best protection under under the new state laws and our own rules, that buildings that we believe our landmarks are listed and they come to you for a C of A is, is what we think is the answer. But we're happy to talk, again, more to the preservation community and decision makers on that approach. But, but currently, that's what we think is the best approach, especially those that are vulnerable. And those that are vulnerable are commercial-only buildings mm -hmm. and single-family homes. Multi-family buildings that, you know, are or are not listed still require a CU. You can't take advantage of state laws to demo a multifamily building. So those are 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 not as vulnerable as kind of commercial only or single family homes. What would be helpful is um, you know, there's sort of three different scenarios, I think. There's the idea of building on a lot that has a historic resource. There's building next to a historic resource, and then building within the context of a, a historic district, um, that it would be good to outline the, the parameters of these different, um, uh, you know, scenarios that you were um, explaining, um, just to be clear on what is it, we are able to control or not able to control and where advocacy would help. Um, I think a simple sort of layout of that would be very helpful so that the public can start to think about, okay, how do I get involved? How do I, uh, what can we do? Um, and maybe it, it's a lot of advocacy at the state level as well um, that people can focus on. Um, and then locally, you know, pushing for getting landmarks, um, you know, nominated. Um, so. I want there to be a sense of ability to do something rather than feeling helpless. So uh, anything that could be outlined in that fashion would be very helpful. 
<coughs> Commissioner, I'd just like to add one other thing. Um, on this question of zoning, doing a rezoning around the parcels that have landmarks as opposed to you know, our current proposed approach, which I think is consistent with how the city is generally zoned today, um, which is that the landmarks are sort of an overlay over the existing zoning, is that the heights that Lisa presented that we've been discussing, and she described the, this as a local program, these higher heights will, are the heights that are going to be achievable through what we offer in this local program that we write the rules for. These are not, um, you know, so we can say in the local program, you know, whether it's the Hosselienthal House or any other, you know, landmark that you're not eligible for these heights if you're if you're a, a locally designated landmark or if you're some other classification. We write those rules. That's not a state thing. That's not a they bonus, you know, a, a state overriding um, our our authority to do that. So, and that's what you have presented in this situation. Right. The right. rezoning. So, the, so there's no reason to think any of yeah. those landmarks that Bridget presented or any of those necessarily are any more in jeopardy through our local program than they are today because and we can say they're not, you know, they, they're not eligible the for our local program. The rezoning also applies to um, uh, market rate buildings? The, yeah, the local program, yeah, projects that, are, you know, have to meet the inclusionary requirement, okay. um, yeah. And so uh, it, this local program, local rezoning, local program, is not related to what the state can and cannot do in our jurisdiction. Meaning that, let's say we have a district that is about 35 feet tall and we establish rezoning at 40 feet. Um, can we do that and have the state density bonus only go two, feet, two stories above that? I don't think that's possible, right? Because they are allotted any number of well, I mean, so there'll be, a, there's a base height limit. This local program will be above that. So the projects using the state density bonus would be basing their base project, their, their bonus project off of the base height limits. Which is Which, like, you had mentioned 55 in one. Right. In, in a lot of cases, the base height limit will just be the existing height limit today, or it will be in some cases, you know, we're going to tweak it a little bit uh, higher, but not dramatically so. And so the base, you know, the, what, what, uh, potential jeopardy those buildings are in today under state laws pretty much what it would be in the future we're not necessarily increasing their jeopardy by increasing the local program which is an alternative kind of parallel path to state density bonus and you're incentivizing them by saying we can go above that base and preserve historic resources at the same time yeah we could either through our objective design standards set some clear parameters for what would be acceptable under the local program in terms of adding to those buildings or changes to those buildings, or we could just make certain classes of buildings ineligible for the local program. That's up for discussion. Thank you. Commissioner Wright. Okay, it's my turn. Um, I, I just have want a, a list too. And, and I encourage you to ask everything, but I just want to let you know that we must get out of here by 4.30. Okay. It does not mean that we can't continue this item. Though. Sure. Well, I don't. I don't plan on talking for twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, I just want to say that I, I do appreciate um, your uh, attention to uh, and consideration to every comment. As you mentioned, um, I think it's pretty clear um, that the staff reaction has been, um, you know, pretty. You know, it seems like you're on top of things in terms of taking. 
listening to comments, um, you've already made a change with added by adding an overlay um, with re in reaction to some comments. So, so I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate um, that you're working with the citywide survey team. Um, I hope that you continue to do that. Um, I hope that um, you continue to work with historic preservation um, staff on the housing and that uh, that and, and I'm glad that Commissioner Nagaswaran was saying that that she shared uh, the comments with um, the preservation staff, right? Because I was going to suggest that that happen. Um, <clears throat> um, I also want to just say that um, historic preservation, housing, and climate policy are not um, you know exclusive of one another. Uh, there's a lot of talk in um, in the international historic preservation community um, about the importance of embodied carbon and uh, climate smart climate response uh, that also is smart for preservation. And uh, it, it, the data that's now being accumulated and analyzed is starting to show, um, is showing, um, that we're, we're not going to build our way out of climate change. Um, they're not before the tipping point, um, at least. So there's a lot of embodied carbon in our historic buildings. I think we have to be smart about the way that we um, rezone. Uh, the office to residential is a perfect example. Uh, and so I suggest if, um, I know you guys are, are, are on top of, of uh, the comments, so suggest that if you haven't already, um, start to talk with uh, the divisions that are working on climate change policy, and uh, because I, I don't think that they're at all, um, that preservation, climate change, uh, or housing, and affordable housing are mutually exclusive. Um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Any other comments from the commission? Um, I just will make a few brief closing comments. I do appreciate, Ms. Damkroger, your suggestion about some kind of way in which we could uh, work together to create policy, and I suggest, Mr. Sucre, that we meet more regularly to do that, maybe particularly with certain members on our commission and Ms. Chin. Uh, Ms. Chin, you really went out of your way, I think, to um, really address issues like several big, big, major issues that were kind of thrown at you within the past 24 hours. So we appreciate that. And I appreciate Commissioner Foley's comments that the planning department staff is working especially hard. And um, I don't think they are ignoring historic preservation, but I think that we as the HPC can maybe uh, play a more proactive role in um, determining policy. So I thank Ms. Damkroger, I thank Mr. Verplank for your good comments, and I, I thank uh, uh, Director Hillis. I think that we need to start figuring out how we can um, address the commercial corridors and the single family homes. I think that's very important, and I appreciate all the comments here today, but I also want to realize that we have comments that are not here today in particular areas of our city and county of San Francisco that often go unheard, and those are the areas that usually get uh, the worst treatment when we talk about preservation, when we talk about 
anything. And so I want to make sure that what, what we do moving forward really looks at the city as a whole. So thank you everyone for your time, uh, for your comments, and we will adjourn 15 minutes earlier than expected. <laughs>